Get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, save, retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Guess what day it is? Huh? Home day! Good morning, everyone. Happy Hump Day. Great to have you with us. Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. It's coming up on 701. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers and officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Our morning here in St. Louis in the studios at 101 ESPN is a heck of a lot better than the morning they're experiencing in Chicago, for example, in the Cardinals traveling party. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Randy. And you're right. We were very excited for the Giolito Flaherty showdown. Two high school teammates making it to the majors two really good pitchers going against one another didn't turn out exactly as we had hoped no i'm sure that jack flaherty at times under his breath was saying thanks a lot jerks <laughs> as the cardinals made three errors behind him he hit a couple of batters he was not typical jack flaherty you don't know why he's allowed a bad outing once in a while three and two thirds seven runs he uh, allowed only three of them earned though he struck out two or struck out three and walked two and threw 91 pitches in three and two-thirds innings, and his defense did not give him any help at all. No, he had some control issues, but for the Cardinals to have, what was it, three errors in the first two innings, not not usually what you expect out of the Cardinals' defense. It was just a mess all around. And the Cardinal offense, even though they scored three runs, has really gone into a funk. The last home stand, especially the series against the Cubs, and now these two against the White Sox, Boy, they've got a lot of opportunities that they aren't taking advantage of. In the beginning, I think it was in the first inning when Goldie had that hit, and then he's trying to make it a double, and he gets thrown out. I thought that was just pretty indicative of the way things have been going, that they have opportunities, but with one way or another, whether it's stranding runners in scoring position or not getting a moment like that, it just seems like nothing's really happening for them. They will play a 110 game today in Chicago at the Cell against the White Sox. Cardinals only a half game ahead of the Cubs now in the National League Central, so the lead is dwindling and they need to turn things around. They need to just start playing clean baseball. If nothing else, even if you don't win, you can work through slumps offensively. You can't through uh, work through slumps defensively, and last night was horrific. It was, and it's also not great if you think about the fact that so many players from the Cardinals are injured right now. And now Harrison Bader has joined the infirmed list. Yesterday, manager Mike Schilt made the announcement. Yeah, non-displaced fracture. Um, so that's a blessing, it turns out. Um, how long? Unsure. You know, clearly the 10 days. Uh, we're hopeful it won't be much beyond that. Really just depends on how much the soreness gets out of there and the discomfort. Uh, once that happens, things can probably ramp up pretty quickly. Of course, the longer he's away from bas- baseball activity, kind of similar to Pauly, the longer it takes because now he needs more baseball activity to get back to the baseline. So um, that's the best I can do for you right now, Jim. And Michelle, all due respect to the other Cardinal outfielders, but nobody plays center field like Harrison Bader does. No. Dylan Carlson can go out there and and do the job. He's not a a poor replacement for Harrison Bader, but when you have him out there, you know you're going to get elite defense from him, and then it just allows the other other pieces of the outfield to be in their more natural positions. And thank goodness for Tommy Edmond, by the way. His versatility has been huge for the Cardinals this season. And they'll need that over the course of the next 10 days. Tyler O'Neill still not there. Bader not there. 
couple of the guys can't hit. Lane Thomas can't hit. Justin Williams can't hit. So you need Tommy Edmond in the outfield along with Carlson. Meanwhile, Blues players had their exit interviews with the media yesterday. Their exit interviews with the front office were on Monday. And David Perron, who was positive for COVID, talked about missing the playoffs after the season that he had. I was just hoping at least the boys would, would get like one game uh one win there because I there's a chance that I could have uh, maybe play uh, that game I'm not sure if, if they would have cleared me but I was doing everything in my power to to get that done and whether it was going to be like managed minutes or not um, I just wanted to be out there find a way out there and then who knows what can happen but uh, yeah it was it was really hard like uh like you said, the season I had, I felt I had momentum going the right way. And, and sure enough, like also as a team, we, we go the whole year cleanly, basically one of the only team in the NHL. And we lived through some like games that were canceled, all that stuff. We, they moved the schedule around. And then when it came our time, uh, that didn't happen. So that was disappointing for me also. So that's disappointing. More disappointing, David Perron, were you vaccinated? Yeah. But uh, yeah, like I've I've seen some tweets <clears throat> about that, <clears throat> and um, I don't know why it's a big deal. Like uh, as much for for guys like the three guys that got it, we we were so <laughs> it's unfortunate, and it shows that it's not perfect. And I, I get it why people can ask, but in the room I can tell you that we support each, each individual to make their own decision, and uh, it's a tough bounce for the three guys that got it. Super unlucky then yeah. for for those guys and for the Blues as a whole that you would have players who are vaccinated and a team who hasn't had to deal with this the entire season and then you're having people test positive for the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, and what the vaccination does is prevents you from having to go to the hospital. It prevents you from dying. Nobody that has been vaccinated has died from COVID-19, but you can still contract the disease even though the symptoms aren't there. We could get it. We're vaccinated. But we don't get tested every day. And right. that's the difference is the Blues players, despite being vaccinated, we're still being tested every day. And because there are players out there who are electing not to be vaccinated, you still have to go through the protocols and make mm -hmm. sure that the people who test positive are isolating. And I can't imagine how difficult that was for David Perron, who wants to be out there and compete and who wants to be there for his team, who was, as he mentioned, Thriving this season, had a lot of momentum heading into the playoffs, and then he unfortunately tests positive, and he just has to sit there and watch and yeah. hope that his team gets to a certain point so he can join them. That has to be a very helpless feeling. And the, the team was really rolling heading into the playoffs. They played 690 hockey in their last 18 games of the regular season, and when they beat Minnesota in their finale, Ryan O'Reilly was pretty confident. We, we make it tough on them and and find ways to beat them. And that's that's what we got to do. That's going to be our focus. We know that they have a lot of talent over there and they work hard. But uh, for us, it's a, it's an exciting challenge. You know, we're, we're going to have some fun and we're going to beat them. Rut roll. Didn't have any fun and didn't beat them. No, did not. It was it was decidedly unfun. And actually, after the series, Gabriel Landeskog was asked if the comments of Ryan O'Reilly had fired the avalanche up and Landeskog said well yeah they did so yesterday I asked Ryan O'Reilly as a captain is this a cautionary tale is this something that he has any regrets about yeah I think I had the belief there I thought you know we could and you know we didn't which is disappointing but um, yeah I don't think it was a, a, a crazy comment I felt that um, you know I believed in this group and um, 
you know, I don't think we got a lot of bounces and it was tough. I think, you know, it just started steamrolling and such. But, um, yeah, I thought, you know, I had the belief, you know, I stepped on the ice and, you know, I was there to, to beat them. And, yeah, it just it just wasn't good enough. It didn't happen. So it's, uh, yeah, but, no, I will never question my belief in trying to win ever. I like that. And at the end of the day, when you're playing a best-of-seven series, being fired up by a, an opponent's comment, that doesn't make a difference in any game that you play. Also, any game. no. And when you're the captain of a of a team that's an underdog going against the best team in the league, you're trying to motivate your team and inspire them in any way that you can. And if going out there and publicly declaring that you're going to beat Colorado somehow fires up your teammates, then mission accomplished. And removed from this, we're never going to really remember those comments. We're going to remember that David Perron was out. We're going to remember the big hits that happened. We're going to remember the fact that the Blues got swept. So I understand his thought process there and what what he was trying to do to be a motivating factor for his teammates. My all-time favorite, Matt Hasselbeck, was the quarterback of the Seahawks playing a playoff game in Green Bay. goes to overtime. And at the coin flip, the Seahawks win, and Matt Hasselbeck says to everybody, officials, Packers, his teammates, we want the ball and we're going to score. And then he throws a pick six to Al Harris (laughs) and Green Bay wins the game. (laughs) But see, we remember Babe Ruth calling his shot. We We remember Pat Maroon skating over to the Bruins and saying, you guys are bleeped. Like, we remember the... Joe Namath. Yes, we remember the ones that turn out in the storybook fashion. Yeah. And the ones that don't (laughs) sometimes. Hey, Wayne Gretzky has stepped down as the Oilers vice chairman. I don't know if the vice chairman role with the Oilers was that demanding. And he was very thankful and appreciative of what happened in Edmonton. But moments later, he was announced as a new analyst on TNT for hockey starting next season. What do you think about that? I think it's cool. I think they're trying to build what they have in basketball with Charles and Kenny and Shaq. Now, Gretzky's a the biggest name in hockey. He's Correct. a great way to get things started. You're going to need some fun people in there because I don't think Gretz is one of those guys who's going to... It, it'd be neat to have Brett Hull on that show. Bingo. So that's exactly what I thought is there's no bigger name in hockey than Wayne Gretzky, but you also are going to need a certain type of personality and someone who's not afraid to, afraid to say things that may be controversial. The Charles Barkley of hockey? Charles or Shaq. Both of them mm-hmm. say things that they feel and they don't really care how it's received by players. And maybe Wayne Gretzky has that in them, but in him, but he just seems to be such an, an even-keeled, respectful guy. I can see him giving great analysis, but I don't see him saying anything that's going to make big headlines i'm with you but i think it'll be great for hockey especially in our country to have wayne gretzky showing up and what they need to do is get viewers to whoever the the controversial guys are and maybe wayne gretzky will draw non-hockey people to tnt if you were going to put together an inside the nba type hockey show who would be your analysts or your commentators i think gretzky and hall are a great start I would love to take Brendan Shanahan away from his role as the president of the Maple Leafs because he's got that sort of personality. He's funny uh, and just a great, smart Alec. You know, I don't know if you could do it nationally. The, the perfect guy is Kelly Chase. Oh, he would be awesome. But they have the, the thing is, you need to have big names too. What about Torts? Torts would be fun. John Tortorella. That's that's a great idea. He's going to say some stuff. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And he'll be quite analytical, too. But Gretzky is going to be the start. We're off and running here on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Coming up, 
We need your text to the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. We've got a little uh, a little Ask Uncle Randy segment coming up. So send in your text. If you want to use a mic drop, you can do that too. And I'll try to help you through life. Hey, it's midweek. You might be down. You might not be feeling your best. Well, Uncle Randy is here to answer your questions on 101 ESPN. Got a question for Uncle Randy? Let him dive into his infinite well filled with wisdom to find you answers. Text 65780. It's Ask Uncle Randy on 101 ESPN. I've been around, you know. All right, get your text in, 65780. It's time to ask Uncle Randy any question you might have. Perhaps you've got a first date coming up this weekend. Perhaps you're having some marital issues. Perhaps there's a relationship problem at work. Maybe you just want to see what you can do to help the Cardinals who made three errors last night. (laughs) Uncle Randy has been around, and I will uh, provide the best answer I can for you. Michelle has your question. She's our go-between here. For you and Uncle Randy. That's right. From the 618, Uncle Randy, my car has 170,000 miles, and I just replaced the brakes. So the wife and I went to look for a new vehicle for me. Mm -hmm. Of course, she fell in love with a vehicle for herself, a used Yukon. Do I bite the bullet and keep riding it out with my car and let her get the new one, or do I stand my ground and get a new vehicle for myself and make her wait, considering she just got her current SUV about a year ago? I believe that with you having 170,000 miles on your vehicle, you have to take the logical approach, even though she does love her Yukon, that that Yukon that she saw, and it's a pre-owned. I think what you need to do is say, honey, I I would love to be able to help you out with the Yukon, but we came looking because my car has 170,000 miles on it. We never know when it's going to break down again. We just had to replace the brakes. What's going to be next? Are we smarter to throw good money after bad with a car that has 170,000 miles on it or replace the vehicle that you got a year ago and liked then. So I'd love to get it for you, but I need a new vehicle. Mm -hmm. I think you need to do the uh, I feel this way play and then get the vehicle that you like. But play the game to your advantage. And this is a game. And yes, she would like the new vehicle, but you can't, at the end of the day, unless you have like a Honda from Bomberito Honda, uh, you can't count on a car with more than 170,000 miles on it. But if they're getting a new car anyway, can't he just get her the one she wants and drive her current vehicle? No, that's her vehicle. She picked that out. He's You pick out your own vehicles. Oh. Yeah, that's the way it works. Oh. But he's trying to do something nice and appease her. And if he's going to get a new vehicle anyway, why not just get the vehicle she wants and then you drive hers? Yeah, this is not a situation where you bite the bullet unless you're totally a point A to point B person. I don't care what I drive, point A to point B. If that's your approach and you don't mind driving her vehicle, then you don't even need to text in. Clearly, he wants to get his vehicle, and I think he should. Yeah, clearly he's asking you for a way to let her down gently. Right, right exactly. And do what he wants. And the, the the reason and the logic behind the reason is she just got a new vehicle a year ago, and you've got 170,000 miles on yours. You don't want to be driving three hours away and have your 170,000-mile vehicle break down. So you need the new vehicle. Because guess who's going to have to come get him? She will. Yep. She will. From the 618, Dear Uncle Randy, I met a girl with four kids and I took her on a first date. It went really well. How soon should it be before I meet her kids? 
That's a really good question. And I, I would say that This is really tough because I don't know how old the kids are and I don't know what their relationship is with their father. I think all of that plays into it. But I think if I'm going to take a broad-based look at this situation, I would wait until she invites you to. And once she invites you to meet the kids, if it went well and you like each other, then you do it. But I I wouldn't be... uh, Let me put it this way. If I were in your shoes, I would go meet her at dates at a place until she invites you to don't don't be picking her up with the kids at her house yeah i would at least advise you to wait until you know this is going to be a serious yeah, definitely thing. right you don't want to and, introduce the kids into that environment until you know you're going to be around for a while and my hope would be that she would be she wouldn't be one that would just want to invite a guy in just because he can help support there, there are people like that. And obviously it went well for you in the first date. But yeah, wait until there's a comfort level on her part. And, and obviously, in most normal situations, there's going to have to be a comfort level. She's going to have to go and say to the husband, hey, is it okay if I introduce you to the kids? If the husband is part of the process here. The ex-husband. From the- or, the, or the current husband, whatever the case might be. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know what the situation is. Very good, very good caveat there. From the 314, Dear Uncle Randy, I applied for a job this past Saturday. I haven't heard back yet. When should I follow up if I don't hear from them? I would follow up now on Wednesday. I have found with uh, my daughter searching for a job that communication from corporate America is not very strong. Mm-mm. And... What we need to do as employees, A, is prompt them. So send an email today and say, hey, this is just a follow-up to the resume and the application that I filed on Saturday. I'm very interested in your position. Who should I get in touch with to discuss this position? And then if you get an interview, there's a very good chance that the company is not going to contact you after they interview you. So immediately... After you interview, you send them an email saying, hey, thanks for talking to me or call and say, thanks for talking to me. I had a great time meeting with you. Is there anything else that I can provide you about me? And then two or three days later, do it again. Don't over communicate. Don't communicate every day. But to me, if you apply on a Saturday and you haven't heard from them on a Wednesday, then that's a good time to follow up. From the 636, Dear Uncle Randy, my wife hates that I work out and eat healthy regularly. She has no interest in joining me. However, I couldn't care less. She's admitted that it makes her feel self-conscious with me being in shape and her not being in shape. How do I smooth this situation with her? All right. This is dependent, of course, on how much you work out. But I would... First, go to her and say, okay, we're obviously eating different diets here. Is there anything that I eat that you like? Is there anything that I can prepare that I would eat that you would like? And hope that that's the case. If she's self-conscious about it, try to find a, a middle ground where it's something that is healthy that she likes. And then the other thing is, she might not like working out, but ask her to go for a walk. Ask her to go for a 
20 minute 30 minute walk and that is good exercise for her and it's something that you can do that hopefully you'll enjoy but the key is communication she is if she is self-conscious what you have to do is get her to enjoy what she's doing if she doesn't like to work out as hard as you do if she doesn't like to go to the gym there's nothing you can do about it but there is a way for you to get exercise together maybe you both go for a bike ride if you have bikes something like that where she isn't as intense about it as you are but you still get your work in or you could tell her that Randy and Michelle are doing 75 hard and see if she wants to join she has <laughs> no interest in doing 75 hard that is such a tricky situation because you want to motivate her and you want her to feel confident and positive. But if she has no interest and you're listening to the complaining all the time, it's probably a little frustrating. And one thing that you can bring to her attention is, hey, I'm doing this so that I'm around for you for the long term. Would you like to join me in living a long life? <laughs> Don't say it that way. Don't say it that way. But just Hey, do you want to die early or not? Yeah, to say, hey, I'm doing this so that uh, I, c I can be healthy for you. Would you like to join me in being healthy? Good. It's not about body image. It's not about weight. It's about long-term health. That's what she needs to understand. Okay, one more, Randy, from the 314. Dear Uncle Randy, my girlfriend and I moved to Nashville nine months ago. Her idea, mm -hmm. I wanted to stay in St. Louis. How do I get her to love St. Louis the way I do so we can move back? All right, she's the girlfriend, not the wife, so you don't have kids yet. Part of the issue here is going to be how much she loves Nashville. But if I were trying to sell a girlfriend on St. Louis, and Michelle, you can help me here, mm -hmm. The first thing that I would do is say that long term, if we're going to be together, we're going to have a much greater comfort level in St. Louis than we are in Nashville. Nashville, we're going to be much more stressed because of the traffic. It's only growing. The competition for jobs is much more intense in Nashville than it is in St. Louis. And people from Chicago, Blackhawks fans, Cubs fans are moving there every single day. Right. And if we're in St. Louis, there's a lot of great things. Yeah, Nashville has Broadway, but are we going to be wanting to do that in five years when we have kids? Is, is Broadway going to be that big of a deal when we have a family? No, it's not. What we want, if you're preparing to marry this girl and you're preparing to have a family with her, sell her on St. Louis being a better family place. Now, I don't know the answer to this, but the way this is worded indicates to me that maybe they are from St. Louis mm -hmm. if they wanted to move to Nashville yeah. initially and our texter here wanted to stay in St. Louis play the family card that if mm -hmm. you are going to have a family that you want to be near your family and yeah. have your tribe around you to help raise your kids mm -hmm. and by the way you can go to the internet and get plenty of information about the cost of living in Nashville versus the cost of living in St. Louis last I saw and this was pre-pandemic Nashville hotel rooms on average, and this is different than living in the town, but it gives you an idea. Nashville hotel rooms were the second most expensive in the country on average to New York. Wow. More than Chicago, more than L.A., more than Philly or Boston. You think it's those bachelorette parties? Yep. Yep. Supply and demand. I'm telling you, Nashville, the past few times I've gone, has almost been unbearable because of the bachelorette parties everywhere. You're wading through a sea of drunk girls wearing sashes wooing at each other. And you're waiting in line. It's 
ridiculous. And maybe that's the play. Take her down to this weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Take her down to uh, Broadway and just go for a walk up and down the street with all the wooing. Hold a mirror up to the ugly parts of Nashville. Yeah, exactly. Say, you really want this? And then point out that the Blues did win a Stanley Cup championship. And the Predators, although they've been to the finals, have not won and are not going to win. And bring up the name Mike Jones. St. Louis, Nashville, Mike Jones, Kevin Dyson. St. Louis all the way. Yeah, there you go. Oh, and they don't have Major League Baseball. Yeah, if she's a baseball fan, bring that up. Yeah, so I think there are a lot of things that you can do to gently coerce her. And Michelle, playing the family card is exactly right, but you need to gently coerce her because people, I can understand why people would move to and love Nashville, but from the standpoint of convenience, St. Louis is a much more convenient place to live. One more quick one, because we mentioned that we're doing 75 hard and we're getting some texts on this. People are wondering if you can explain once again what the parameters of 75 Hard are, because it's only day two. People can jump in. 75 Hard is a great way to get in shape and live a longer life. So here's what you need to do. You need to develop a diet plan so that you're healthy. And what I'm trying to do is is kind of detox out of all the processed foods. So I'm doing like a a two-egg omelet with vegetables for breakfast, uh, grilled chicken breast, and... Uh, some broccoli for lunch and then for dinner a vegetable with like I can do a fish, a salmon, swordfish, something like that. A steak once or twice a week if I want to. So that's going to be the diet and by the way, not a bad idea to have some fruit in mid-morning and maybe some nuts, almonds or something in mid-afternoon. Try to eat every two and a half hours something in mid-afternoon. Try to eat every two and a half hours of just something small. So that's my start with the diet. Then the other parts of 75 Hard Two workouts a day of 45 minutes each. At least one of them is outside. You need to drink a gallon of water every day. And I'm often running. I had 20 ounces of this. I've had 36, 46. I'll be at 52 ounces here in just a few minutes. And you need to drink, what, 120 ounces of water every day. So that's the water part of it. And then you, at some point, need to read uh, 10 pages of nonfiction. I'm reading Chasing the Dream by Joe Torrey. Nice. Old book, but oldie buddy, but a goodie. No alcohol, mm-hmm. and then you need to take a uh, selfie every single day to track your progress. Yeah, body pic. Yeah, and somebody got mad at me because I didn't mention no alcohol because it's a non-factor for me. But no alcohol is a big factor for a lot of people. Especially in the summertime. And you have to do it for 75 days, and it's hard. And if you have one sip of booze, you're out. If you forget to take your picture, you're out. Yeah. You have to be very diligent. I downloaded the app. There's a 75 Hard app. What is there? It's basically just a checklist every day, and you can write notes in it. But I'm a, a task and a list-oriented person, so that helps me. So maybe that will help some other people, I too, like that idea a to lot. To have it all right yeah. here handy-dandy. And it'll send you a push notification at night saying, did you forget to complete your tasks? And so mm, maybe if okay. you forgot to take your picture and you see the push notification, you'll pop up out of bed so you're still in. Michelle, I, I'm a, a Sprint customer, Sprint slash T-Mobile, and they sent a new SIM card. So last night I was trying to change the SIM card out myself. And unfortunately, <laughs> Randy took the old SIM card and tray out, and I was putting the new one in. And somehow I didn't have my mini SD card installed in the tray properly. So I put it in, and I feel, oh, this isn't going in, and it's not coming out. 
So I, I pulled the tray a little bit harder, and the SD card got stuck in the phone. So it's a mess. So I took it to get it repaired. So I'm, fortunately, I kept an old phone around, and nice. I got it switched, so I've got that going. But I do not have an app right now for 75 Hard. And I might wind up with an iPhone. I might like wind up uh, FaceTiming with you at some point. I've never FaceTimed with my own phone in my life. What? I've never had an iPhone. Okay, well, we need to FaceTime then, just so you can say you've done it. Then I need to get an iPhone. There we go. You should. That, <laughs> we'll work on that. We'll see. That's Michelle. I'm Randy, and that's Ask Uncle Randy. Thank you very much for your texts. Coming in, how bad is it getting for the Cardinals? And are you concerned after last night's defensive performance? That's coming your way on 101 ESPN. Nothing good about last night's Cardinal game in Chicago against the White Sox. We're going to talk to Adam Wainwright coming up at 940 as the Cardinals get ready to wrap up the series with a 110 contest against Tony LaRusso's White Sox. But Michelle, this was so atypical of the Cardinals and both teams were sloppy, but we focus on our team that had three errors and Jack Flaherty allowed seven runs and only three of them were earned. It was uh, it, it, it was really ugly to watch and it took forever too. It did take forever, and I was surprised to see Jack Flaherty seem so off, especially in a big game like that where he's going against his high school teammate and his friend in Lucas Giolito. But the defense is what surprised me the most because that's the way that the Cardinals are going to win this season. We know that the offense has been feast or famine, a little bit of a famine moment right now. But the one thing that you think you can really count on with the Cardinals is pitching for the most part and solid defense. So when you're getting three errors in the first two innings, that's atypical of what you expect from the Cardinals. And in Major League Baseball, only 10 teams have more errors than the Cardinals, and those are generally the pretty bad teams. How does Flaherty deal with that? happens you just you gotta continue to make pitches and continue to try to execute um that's all you can try to do you know more 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 times than not you know our defense is gonna be rock solid all you can do is continue to try to execute continue to uh, make pitches continue to try to get outs um, you know there's no give up in, in anybody on this team so it was just a matter of continuing to try to execute continue to try to get outs and you know force some weak contact which you know i was able to hold the kind of top of the order and check for the most part outside of kind of one swing and you know we just it just it's one of those michelle we obviously aren't inside jack flaherty's head but his body language told me that he was frustrated and he wasn't just making the next pitch that there he was overcooking pitches it looked to me like he was frustrated with what was happening around him yeah he's usually not super demonstrative jack tends to keep it a little bit internal and, and even keel but there were moments there last night where you saw him dropping his head and i, I believe he took his glove and slammed it against the mm -hmm. side of his body and you could see him saying saying things out loud he definitely was feeling the frustration what did he think of his overall performance i mean they didn't have very many balls hard i feel like you know they hit the one ball that made a mistake on with abreu um all you can try to do in those situations is keep trying to execute pitches and try to induce weak contact um, but really just keep executing pitches in those situations trying to look at you know pitches i made and you know that i had to keep i was just trying to keep making pitches and continuing to try to execute and obviously he did as much as he could, but it wasn't enough for the Cardinals, who lost 8-3. to three. Is it time that we talk about Nolan Arenado's defense a little? I would say so. Four okay. errors in his last eight games. Why has he had more recently? 
Well, we just got to, you know, start hitting the ball a little bit better, you know, playing def better defense. And, uh, you know, that's it, really. Um, you know, obviously our pitchers will keep us in the game. We, we, we know they will. Um, but there's no doubt offensively, you know, there's some guys that aren't feeling great. And uh, there's more than one. And, you know, that makes it a little bit harder for us right now. But I think we'll be just fine. You know, we know what we can do. We haven't hit it. Like I said, I still feel like we haven't hit our stride yet. And I think we will. But uh, definitely, you know, pitching and defense. And right now, defensively, we just got to be a little bit better and have those quality at bats. And the team defense needs to be a little bit better. But it's kind of strange for Arenado to have an eight-game stretch where he makes four errors. Yeah, I think just not making aggressive moves, you know, kind of in between, making in-between moves. And uh, I got caught in between on that ground ball today. And it's either you go for it or you drop step back and uh, I got caught in between and uh, that's usually what happens and I've been doing that a little bit lately um, and uh, I know I'm better than that um, but I haven't yeah there's no doubt I haven't done a very good job right now um, or the last few games with my defense but um, you know I know I'm better than that I'm not too worried about it I'm um, just gotta get to work get, you know work on the right things which we have been but just you know making the right decisions that's all hey I I'm still good with you Nolan we're good Oh, good. I'm glad you're good. Yeah. Did you see how before I asked you, you if it's time to talk about Nolan Arenado's, Arenado's defense, I paused because it feels like even blasphemy to break yeah, it, it really up. does, yeah. But I'm with him. I'm not that concerned because we do know how sound he is defensively most of the time. But when you're on a bit of a trend like this and so many other trends around you with the team aren't going well either, that's when I think you start to see it, see it and feel it a little bit more. He's played 48 games. He's made seven errors. It would not surprise me at all if he would finish the season with something like 10 errors and play 158 games. That's just the way he is, and this is an aberration. Heck, I think even Ozzie Smith made three errors in a game one time. Well, there you go. So don't worry about it. He'll be fine. But the Cardinal defense as a group needs to be better. Losing Harrison Bader, and at least for 10 days, losing a gold glover in Tyler O'Neill mm -hmm. hurts. Now having to move Tommy Edmund to the outfield, that hurts. There's a lot of things that are going into the negativity here of the defense, and Mike Schilt has to find a way to get his best defensive team on the field. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, get your text into the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. We've got Take It or Leave It coming your way on 101 ESPN. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Michelle and Randy, we've got Take It or Leave It. And Michelle turned me on to this yesterday, and I need to get it out there because I'm just I'm blowing up with excitement. Uh, Michelle Montana Yao, Malik Beasley, Larsa Pippen, really getting into it on the, uh, on the socials, aren't they? And here's what I find the most notable aspect of this. Montana Yao sending a long missive to Larsa Pippen saying, uh, in part, first of all, we as women don't claim you. You wouldn't know girl code if it slapped you in the face. You just an old, desperate, thirsty, blank, ran through blow-up doll. You call paparazzi every single day and every single man. Blank is sad and lame af AF. Uh, you need clout that bad at your age? Like, I'll be damned if I'm walking around behaving like that in 23 years. Uh, take it or leave it, Michelle. Girl code is an unwritten rule. Um, I'll take that because I don't think it's printed anywhere. Okay. But there is certainly a girl code, just like there's a guy code, and bro code. Clearly, Larsa Pippen is like the Ermine Mercedes of unwritten yeah, girl she's code. she's swinging on 3-0. Yeah. <laughs>
She's swinging. <laughs> no doubt about she's it. She's swinging straight into those DMs. Okay, she's swinging for the fences. This is classic. I love this stuff. This is great. You told me one time that the great thing about the NBA is that it's basically uh, soap opera for guys. And it is. It's great. This is like what you would see in a soap opera. It's soap opera for everybody. It's great. Yeah. Okay, Randy, Chris Bryant, as we know famously, said that St. Louis was boring. Yeah. And he was recently talking about how he loves that there's fans back in the stands because he's had so many great interactions recently with fans. He said one good one came in St. Louis. There were some kids in the stands that wanted to play rock, paper, scissors with him. And he obliged. He played rock, paper, scissors with the kids in the stands at Bush Stadium. He said, I went paper twice and the kid went scissors twice. I thought I could outsmart a 10-year-old, but I got played. Take it or leave it. You're not surprised Chris Bryant would play the most boring of hands in rock, paper, scissors and paper. I'll take it. I'm not surprised. And I will add that the typical St. Louis 10-year-old is going to be smarter than Chris Bryant. That's right. You're, if you're doing rock, paper, scissors, you never play paper first. You no, never play a, paper first. No, that's lame. That, Come no, on. You can't, can't make that play. It actually tells me something about him that he would not only go paper first, but he would double down and go paper twice. I know. That's ridiculous. Right? I mean, you, you got to come back with scissors, you, you don't you? You always lead with rock or scissors. Yeah. This is a known fact. Yeah. If you're watching rock, paper, scissors on the Ocho, on ESPN, I would be floored if somebody led with paper. Only people like Chris Bryant. There You're you right. Go. There you go. Boring Cub, people. Cubs lead with paper. Absolutely. Uh, Marty the Party, who is an avowed Cubs fan, <laughs> has the text line open, 65780. Marty, what do you got for us? All right, from the 314, take it or leave it. Tim Tebow will be comeback player of the year. Oh, leave that. Yeah, I'm going to leave that. You um, need something to come back from, first of all. Well, he's resurrected his career. He hasn't played in over 3,000 days. I would say yeah, that's coming back. That's kind of coming back, yeah. Uh, but then he's going to have to play. So I'm, I'm going to leave that. Who could be comeback player of the year? Maybe Ronnie Stanley with the Ravens, left tackle? Mm. Somebody like that. We'll, we'll find a comeback player of the year for I'm you. I'm trying but to it, think of Joe Burrow. Oh, yeah, there you go. Joe Burrow would be a great option for comeback player of the year. He's a full go. Already. It's He's amazing. He's already a full go. So I could see him yeah. coming out and. Just like Sam Bradford was. Don't you put that evil on him, Randy. I'm just saying. Sam don't, was full go, wasn't he? Don't you even mention those two in the same breath. I love Joe Burrow. I think he's going to be an exciting player. I do not want him to have the same fate. So let's not even put that in the universe. Okay. How about Carson Wentz? Oh, come on. I mean, it's comeback player of the year. Oh, okay. I thought you meant that he would have this a similar career. No. And I certainly don't want that for Joe. But maybe... Yeah, he could come back and be in the playoffs. I, I don't know if he was hurt last year, though. You got to come back from being bad. How about Andy Dalton in Chicago? <laughs> Marty, you're funny. <laughs> uh, from the three one four, as much oh, as I got the eye, it's Christian McCaffrey. Oh, good way. call, good call. I still, I, I've, I got my money on Joe Burrow. Okay. All right, from the three one four, take it or leave it. As much as I like Schwartz, he would be a great addition to the new team in Seattle for a fresh start for him. If they want to sign him as a free agent. That would be good. I, I would think that uh, if when he gets out there, if he gets out there in free agency, that they would have some interest as a veteran presence for him. Absolutely. But no, he he's not eligible for the expansion draft because he's a free agent. But I can't imagine, though, that he's a, the type of player that they would be interested in. Sure, he would absolutely be. He's the kind of guy that if you have a young startup team that can show everybody the way it's supposed to be done with effort and mental acuity on both ends of the ice, yeah, he would be the kind of guy you'd want. 
314, take it or leave it. Connor McDavid's the Mike Trout of the NHL. Take Best it. player in the league. Yep, that hasn't won. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> you didn't even need to finish <laughs> no. a sentence. Six take years, it. and he has been to the playoffs three times, but hadn't been past the first round. He's got that's going to be tough in Edmonton mm-hmm. to be a cap team in Edmonton. I wonder if it's going to happen for him, if it's going to happen there. I doubt it. Me too. Just like I don't think it's going to happen for Mike Trout with the Angels, which is why I was surprised he wanted, he was that eager to sign that contract. Yeah, $450 million. It's a lot of money, but if you're Mike Trout, don't you want to win at some point? Maybe not. Doesn't, he doesn't want to be a superstar. He is such an interesting case study because you're right. He does not have any interest in being a superstar. He doesn't have any interest in being in a bigger market, even mm-hmm. though that's even though that's LA. It's not it's not the Dodgers, right? We're not right. we're not putting the Angels in the same breath, even though they are in a big market. And I have no doubt though that he's a really competitive guy and would like to win. And I I I don't know. I just don't think it's going to happen there for him and that bums me out not only for him but for baseball in general you know what he needs and it'll never happen obviously the spot for him is st louis oh gosh can you imagine he talks about all the time how albert returning here was one of the most special things he's ever been a part of yeah and you you aren't overwhelmed by media or fans in st louis you can go play your game you can expect to win nolan arenado's having a great time and Trout could do the same thing. I mean, look what Albert did for 11 years. Mm-hmm. Nobody bothered that. Well, not, they didn't go overboard in bothering Albert. I think he had a pretty good time and won a lot. I would think so. You're right. This is a great market for him. I would also think Chicago, too. The Cubs? Yeah. Maybe the White Sox. Or the White Sox. In the, in, if he's a Cub, he gets noticed a lot out in Chicago. Yeah. If he goes out. But the, the weather is fantastic to analyze in Chicago. It is. You have about maybe 45 days of perfection in the summer. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about how excited he would be on those May days where you think it's going to be warm and then it snows. Yep. He He'd be all that. over it, all over the weather reports. Take it or leave it from the 636. It's time to make Yachty's baseball first player manager since Pete Rose in 86. I think I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that. I think Mike Schilt is more than capable in doing a good job. Yeah. Take it or leave it from the 314. The Cards need to pursue a John Means or Mancini trade from Baltimore. I'm intrigued by Mancini. I I wonder if he can still play the outfield. Played a lot of first base for them. Means is intriguing. Threw the no-hitter earlier this year. He had an all-star year a couple of years ago. But, and that's a bad organization. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Trey Mancini is hitting a bunch of bombs. Good story. Means is a starting pitcher. Yeah, so, yeah, why not? From the 314, take it or leave it. Pareko needs to take a step forward offensively for the Blues to be where they want to be. Take it. Definitely take it. And he also needs to take a step forward and be healthy. Yeah. When they watched Alex Petrangelo walk out the door, Tori Krug wasn't signed as his replacement. Colton Pareko was Alex Petrangelo's replacement. Correct. And he needs to be healthy and he needs to step up and be a number one guy. I would love to know, once it's all said and done and he's willing to talk about it, how injured he was this season, how affected he was on a game-to-game basis. And Baruby and Armstrong are speaking to the media today, and we'll find out who needs to have surgery this offseason. That'll tell us. And take it or leave it, you'll be stunned if his name's not on that list. I will be stunned. Yeah, I'll take it. One more? Yep. Uh, this Take it or leave it, the Celtics and Clippers will both get swept in the first round. I'll take 
that. Yeah, I think so. Celtics didn't look great. No, and Brooklyn is pretty darn good, right? No Jalen Brown really hurts. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, I'll go with that. And then um, the Clippers are, and by the way, they're talking about now Kawhi leaving after this season. He's got an opt-out. So he might go elsewhere. When's the next time they play? They might they might not play again until Friday. Let's see. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so their next game. Yeah, they play at Dallas on Friday. And uh, Dallas leads 2-0. And Luka is awesome. He's just great. He's very good. Yeah. So they made a mistake with their Porzingis trade because he's not. But Luka is a guy that can carry a team to a series win. And I think we're going to see it. Thanks, Marty. And thank you very much for your text to the Air Comfort Service, text line 65780. Coming up, the Blues spoke to the media yesterday. Blues players spoke to the media yesterday. And some interesting comments about what they need to do to be better. That's next on 101 ESPN. 803 is your time. The time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler, Michelle and Randy. And Michelle, after this season, the 2021 NHL season, as we sit here on May 26th, and the Blues obviously have some work to do, are you confident that with the players that are around and Doug Armstrong and Craig Berube, that the Blues can win the 2022 Stanley Cup championship? As currently constructed, no. I think that Army is going to make some moves, and I think this team does need a little tweaking. But the more I reflect on this past season, and I'm not making excuses for them at all, they were dealing with injury after injury after injury. They had to deal with the travel. They had the disruption of the schedule. We talked to David Perron about games sometimes that were missed. And they were able to get hot there for a little bit, but I don't think we ever really got a full glimpse of what this team could be. No, I'm with you. And I think one of the things that we need to look at from the Blues perspective, from our perspective as Blues fans, is that the Blues have had a lot of guys that they've they've hyped, like Sanford, Blay, Robert Thomas, mm-hmm. young players that haven't worked out. They need and Jordan Cairo had a nice start. Robbie Fabry had a nice start too. He did. So you don't know about their young guys and I I think it's fair to question, especially at the forward position, whether or not their projection models work. Because the percentage, when you, well, just look at the guys that they have. Granted, they did draft David Perron in an administration two administrations ago. But they traded for O'Reilly. They traded for Shen. Schwartz, he was another, uh, I guess he was the first draft choice by Army. But Overall, most of the quality players that they have brought in were brought in from the outside. So for those that are saying it might not be a bad idea for the Blues to package some of their kids to go get a new player, I'm not completely averse to that thought process because the percentage of guys that hit, young players that hit for the Blues is not exceptionally high. And Army seems to know which ones to deal and when. Mm-hmm. So that gives me more confidence. Yeah, the people that do nothing like the Tage Thompsons of the world, absolutely. And they, it would benefit them. Dominic Bach hasn't done anything yet. It would benefit them to hit on a first-round draft choice, too. But of the stars on this team, let's just take the people that we look at as stars in St. Louis. O'Reilly, Perron, Shen. Do you throw Schwartzy into that mix still? I do. 
I will too. And then Sunquist, who came from elsewhere. I don't think we can call Robert Thomas a star right now, do you? Not right now. No. And then uh, on defense, you're looking at... I still think Robert Thomas is capable of it, I, I think he is, too. Oh, and by the way, Vladdy is a star. Yeah. But he's just... Not playing like not one. performing like one. So the question is, David Perron... Can the Blues still compete with the top teams in the NHL? We have had like a turnover of, of players uh, in, in the last couple of years that have been impactful players, not only on the ice, but in the leadership department, in the culture department of this team, the identity to every single night. We know what to expect. And I think obviously with Jay Bo, Petro and, and Steiner, like that's going to be a, a big difference there. So it's. Uh, I thought we did a good job last year um, before COVID hit, and then now it's up to us, like to to challenge each, each other to really kind of grab that back, not let it slip much further than that. And you can look at it, yes, it's there was a gap, but at the same time, I'd like to see our team with Sonny playing, with myself playing, Falker, those guys, everyone missing, Bortuzzo, like even Gunny, um, see where we would have uh, been at playing them like that. I think we could have had a chance, but again, uh, it's up to us to show it next year. And, and if we don't start showing, and then we know what direction it could it could go as well. So um, I think at times, like from from playing and watching, um, I, I just felt like we weren't like sustaining the momentum. That one line would go out there, and then it would kind of turn into a different different game. We have to to stay true to our culture, our identity, and um, I think that's the way to have success moving forward. I'm with our guy David Perron there. I would have loved to see this team at full strength and this team that had been at full strength and was able to find that rhythm and then what they would have looked like versus Colorado. But I think he hit on something interesting there about their identity. Did this Blues team this past season have an identity in your eyes? Uh no, you really knew, didn't know what it was going to be. You didn't. And I think that that's one thing they need to think about moving forward is what is the style of play going to be like? What is the identity of the team going to be? And do you have players that fit that style of play? Do you have players that fit that identity? And again, I know that it was very difficult for this team to try to find that style when they're dealing with injury after injury. It was almost like a whack-a-mole. As soon as someone got healthy, another one would pop up. Um, but I think that that is something that we've seen the Blues have success with in the past. When they won the Stanley Cup, they had a very specific identity and everyone knew what their role was and everyone played it to perfection. So I think moving forward, that's something they need to consider. Braden Shen agrees with you. I feel like I've always said it. When you played against the St. Louis Blues as an opposing team and being a part of the team now, the team is built on not superstars or, or guys that are going to be, you know, top two or top three in league scoring. It's built on guys that are very good players that accept roles, um, do what it takes to win hockey games night in and night out. And that's kind of what's been happening here for the past, you know, 10 years. And that's why they've been so successful making the playoffs. Um, you know, I think we have to get back to, like I said, you know, the team identity of being hard to play against, um, you know, hard defensive. And ultimately that wins you hockey games and ultimately that brings you success. And, and it has in the past. And we've got to get back to, uh, you know, as a group, um, you know, as an older guy on the team now, um, you know, we have to make sure we're going to, you know, put full attention to that next year. And my thought here is that they never effectively filled the role vacated by Alexander Steen. Mm -hmm. Kyle Clifford was just not that good. Never effectively filled the role, and it's a hard thing to do, of Jay Bo Meester. And I believe Mikola can become that guy. 
And obviously, and you're going to lose great players with the system as it is with free agency. You're going to lose a guy like Alex Petrangelo. And like we talked about earlier, Pareko didn't step up and assume that role. So those role players that Schenner is talking about, a lot of them departed and their spots weren't effectively filled. Now, in some of those, I think, Michelle, that there's players on hand that can fill that role. Sunquist coming back is a huge part, by the way. Yes. But they're going to have to go out and make some moves this offseason, whether it be by trade or free agency, to get guys. We knew that Oscar Sunquist was the engine in so many ways, but I don't think we've ever been more aware of the impact that no. he makes than we are right now. Absolutely. Now, one of the other things that's happened is when the Blues won the Stanley Cup with that style that Braden Shen talked about, what did Colorado and Vegas do? They went out and got guys so that they could compete with that style. That's why Colorado goes out and gets a Kadri a and a Donskoy and a Taves. That's why Vegas goes and signs Petrangelo away, and uh, they, they make the deal for a Mark Stone. And that's something that Ryan O'Reilly recognized. Yeah, I think it's no secret. You watch playoffs, you see that grit and that heaviness that uh, you know we kind of try to pride ourselves on. You, you see in playoffs that you have to have that and you don't stand a chance if you don't have it and you know even last year you see Tampa the way they played and and how you know their structure and the way the heaviness that they had throughout their lineup and you know again these teams yeah it's 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 huge you know to be to to win this league you have to have that and it's it's got to be a staple and yeah like yeah that's something that we just did we didn't have enough of and weren't consistent enough with so you need to play heavy, but at this point now, the Blues also need to try to match the speed of Colorado. Which is a difficult balance to strike it is. when you're when you're in search of players. Yeah, and that's why this is such a paramount offseason for Army, and I'm confident that he can get it. And there are guys that are out there in free agency for the Steen role. If you watch Tampa, watch Coleman. Watch Blake Coleman. He, he's perfect, and I don't know that uh, he's a free agent. I don't know if Tampa will be able to sign him or not. But there's some other guys out there that you can get. To me, the most difficult thing the Blues need to find is that large, right-handed defenseman that's better than Robert Bortuzzo. Every time you make a move, you need to make yourself better. And I think they can find the, that left winger on the fourth line relatively easily, find the right guy. But finding that big defenseman to knock people out of the crease, that's going to be the biggest and toughest chore for Army this offseason. That's Michelle. I'm Randy, and that is today's Fresh Take here on 101 ESPN. Coming up, an interesting piece this weekend at ESPN.com about what's happening with transfers in college football and how teams are never stopping recruiting. That comes your way next on 101 ESPN. Back to Carriker and Smallman, coming to you live from the Car Shield Studio. This is 101 ESPN. There's a great piece up by Alex Scarborough at ESPN.com about the transfer portal in college football. And it's noted in the article how the transfer market in college football has began begun to mirror NBA free agency. A former four-star athlete told ESPN he would not have entered the portal this offseason if he hadn't known ahead of time that he would have his choice of landing spots. His high school coach had received calls from college coaches asking whether he was happy weeks before he made public his intent to transfer. He's, uh, and a year before that, players that he knew from high school were calling to say, hey, I need to come over there and join them. So what's happening is kind of like LeBron and 
Bosch and Wade getting together to go to Miami. College football players are getting together, even though they're in school already at colleges, and they, they're trying to form little super teams. Or coaches are getting in touch with high school coaches and having them gauge the interest of the player. And they're finding these avenues to work around. Uh, this was a very interesting article, but this doesn't surprise me in the least. Does it surprise you that this is happening? No. Uh-uh. Not and at all. It'd be interesting if the NCAA would investigate. And an ACC assistant said all the NCAA would have to do is check phone records to see what's really going on. See if college coaches are calling high school coaches. But it won't because he said, I just don't think they want to do that stuff. And Eli Drinkwitz, quoted extensively in the piece, said that the NCAA would need to open an investigation. But he asked, what good would it do when it still hasn't punished the coaches implicated in the basketball FBI investigation? Eli said, what kind of ferociousness is behind the enforcement if you have people on tape admitting to violations and they're still actively coaching? Which is a great point. Does the NCAA really want to go there? They definitely don't. And in the piece, it's estimated that 60% of college teams are doing this. 60%. And a lot of the players spoken to uh, about this said that they enter the transfer portal knowing where their landing spot is going to be. So they're not just unhappy with their situation, entering the transfer portal and seeing what interest is there. They've already had all of these conversations behind closed doors, knowing where they're likely going to go. And the NCAA, I doubt, wants to open this can of worms because in that 60%, how many schools that are considered earners are involved? And that's what they want to avoid. That's what they want to avoid. It's the UNC academic scandal where nothing happens. It's, as Coach Drink mentioned, when you have prominent college coaches from earners, basketball programs, admitting to things on tape and nothing happens. It seems like it's the Mizzou's of the world that comply with the NCAA that are not necessarily the big name on the marquee all the time that they want to take aim at. But with 60% of schools doing this, if you take one down, you're going to likely have to investigate all of them. And I, I will tell you that from the kid's perspective, I don't have a problem at all with this. You make a decision probably based on a weekend visit that you're going to go to a school and maybe you get to the school and you decide you decide you don't like it and football players aren't going to college generally for college they're going to the football for the football and they decide they don't like their position coach or they don't like the head coach or they don't like something about the facilities or and, the opportunity to play or, is not there right playing time is a, a huge part of it so if kids want which they have now that one-time move, if they want it to be unfettered free agency, I'm actually okay with that. And it's it's not like college football was. Justin Fields can make the move from Georgia to Ohio State and go become the top a top five pick in the NFL draft, or top 11 pick, I guess, in the mm-hmm. NFL draft, but play in the playoffs. It happened with Baker Mayfield. It happened with Kyler Murray. It's happening all the time, and... For the players, if they if that's what they feel like makes them better as they pass their 18th and 19th birthdays, I'm fine with that. I'm with you. The thing that bothers me the most about this is these 
fake invisible guardrails that exist yeah. where people are acting like this is not allowed or this is a problem. And those schools that are complying with the rules and not tampering, you're being put at such, such a disadvantage when you know that all of your peers and all of your competition is going out and doing this. So that's my issue with it is that every school is not on the same playing field, even though the majority of schools are doing this. Well, Michelle, earlier today we talked about Montana Yao and the girl code, <laughs> right? Well, Nick Saban and Montana Yao are like kindred spirits because back in 2017, Nick Saban advocated for a rule of civility, girl code for girls, rule of civility among coaches, not to tamper with one another's players. The girl code, you don't tamper with Malik Beasley. The rule of civility among coaches, you don't tamper with my player. And so... What Saban wants is essentially a girl code. We can get a a different name for Hmm. coaches. The only thing with your comp here, Randy, is that if Montana Yao is Nick Saban, no one's leaving Nick Saban. Like, he wants the code that she wants. Oh, no, he's had guys leave. Mm, But Not Not many. many. Not Not many. many. Most people are trying to get Saban. (laughs) Right. So, and the question would be then, is like Mac Brown, Larsa, Mac Brown, Larsa Pippen. I don't know. Let me marinate Who's on that. It's a really old one. It oh, still has game. Not that old. She's not that, let's avoid this. But <laughs> here's here's my thing with Nick Saban saying that. Yes, in theory, I I totally agree with him, and I appreciate that he's saying stuff like this. But Nick Saban is getting any recruit that he wants, so he's not really the person I think that has to deal with tampering or the competition in this way because he's has so many five star recruits and so much talent that wants to come to Alabama or that already is playing there that he doesn't have to really deal with this in the same way. Right, and you think about. MAC schools, and there was a defensive coordinator that told ESPN he wouldn't bother recruiting high school players if he was like at a place like Ball State. He said if he helps turn that player into an all-mech type, uh, a school like us, a Power 5, is going to come and take him. He said, why spend all that time developing a kid only for him to leave when I can go sign a kid who's unhappy as the fourth corner at a Power 5 school and he's a better player anyway, which is a great point. And then Mac Brown, I thought, I mentioned Mac Brown the North Carolina coach, I thought he made the most interesting and salient point here. He said, you play a team now and you don't go shake the coach's hand and on the other side. You go to shake the great tight end's hand. Hey, you look great, man. Oh, man, we should have recruited you. Wish you were here. Brown paused. Well, he said, now he can be. Right. And the problem with this is the NCAA rules, they allow players on opposing teams to talk to one another about transferring as long as it's not done at the direction of a coach. Mm -hmm. So within the rules, they have allowed these back channels to exist because if you're a coach and you say, well, I just can't be the one driving this bus, but I can tag in other people to do it. I could have conversations with other people about how much we like Justin Fields and just make sure that that message gets to him, make sure those assurances get to him that there's a spot waiting here for him. It's so easy. They need to either change the rule or abolish this altogether. There's no way you can do that because you've got all these seven-on-seven camps, kids from Texas, no kids from Missouri, no kids from Minnesota, no kids from Alabama. They all know each other. They all have each other's numbers. They're all communicating. There's no way that you can ever stop this because there's no way that you could ever determine that a coach was leading this. And players ultimately – they understand what sort of power they have. They're doing it on their own. They, in this 
article, I thought one of the best things that they said is every kid thinks they're LeBron, even if the kid doesn't play. He thinks that he has the power now because they all look at what LeBron did, being able to shape his future and take the power back and making these decisions. And players have realized, even at the collegiate level, the type of power that they have. And you're right. Most of these kids communicate on Snapchat anyway, which those messages disappear. And you have no way of tracking this whatsoever. And one other note from Eli Drinkwitz, who is so well-spoken and so thoughtful, and we, we love Coach. But an ACC assistant said that we should have a transfer department which will monitor FCS and lower FBS t- games and make a list. So Power 5 schools should have essentially a scouting staff, a transfer department which will monitor lower-level teams and they can determine, quote, this guy is a legit dude and he's from the area. He's an NFL-type player. Let's see if after the season he's interested in transferring here. To which Drinkwitz said, wouldn't that be the definition of tampering? If you have a director of college scouting and you were actively watching college players to determine whether or not they were good enough to be on your roster, yes, it would. Yes, it would. If, if That sounds exactly like the definition of that. One other negative to this, too, that we haven't brought up is that these – players that are entering the transfer portal are getting assurances from X program that there's going to be a spot for them. But what they don't realize oftentimes is that five other players at the same position are having those same back channel mm-hmm. conversations. So then there has been instances where, where these players enter the transfer portal and then you have a school saying not directly through the coach, but through all of these other voices that, there's going to be a spot at Georgia. And then when there's five wide receivers that are entering the transfer portal that Georgia has spoken to all of them, they're going to pick the best one. Right, right. And so then these players are in a bad spot. It's free agency. It is. It is free agency. It's free agency. And it, ultimately, Michelle, we don't have college football anymore. We have a different level of pro football in Power 5 college. It's the minors. It, it is. It, and so we can throw the school part of it out the window because it doesn't. the school part of it doesn't even matter anymore. It's all about the product on the field on fall Saturdays. It, I'm going to correct you there. It's all about how much money they're generating. Right. <laughs> that, and that product is generating the money, right? Exactly. So it's, as fans, and I know you might be driving down to, but Randy, what about their scholarships? What about going to school? That doesn't matter anymore. That is not a part of the equation with college football. College football, the the only thing that connects college football to college is the name. Correct. <laughs> These players are not getting recruited because of their GPAs. They are not. And. I would love to see the average GPA of a lot of these athletes compared to the the average GPA of the rest of the school. And I say that because they're not getting recruited for that. And they have a full-time job with their sport. When you're a football player or a basketball player or pick your poison of whatever sport that you compete in in college, I don't think people really realize the time and effort that it takes to compete at a high level in collegiate collegiate athletics. You have team meetings, you have practice, you have the travel, you have the games, you have the recovery, you have film study. If you're a football player studying the playbook, all of these things take up time and your your academics a lot of times take a backseat. College football players within the next couple of weeks will be back on campus. College football players are going to spend more time, if they play four years of college football, if they participate with the team, even if they don't play in the games on Saturday, they're going to spend more time guaranteed participating in football-related events than academic-related events. 
way more time. Guaranteed. And the problem with that is that a very small percentage of these athletes go on to the next yeah. level. And so they're pouring their time and their energy in and their resources that they have available to them into the athletic side of this and not the academic side, which is why I think the whole thing needs to be overhauled. Well, <laughs> and that's why parents need to understand that about 1.5% of all high school players wind up getting drafted to the NFL. 1.5%. Yeah. So don't count on it. Use, don't let college football use you. Use college football to your advantage. That's Michelle. I'm Randy coming up the fight on 101 ESPN. Welcome to the fight on Carriker and Smallman. In the red corner, average Joe Listener. And in the blue corner, the undisputed king of morning drive. Please welcome Randy Welcome back to Kerrigan Smallman here on 101 ESPN. It's time for the fight. Let's welcome Ryan back in with us. Ryan beat Randy yesterday. I believe, Marty, the score was 2-1. to one. Yep. Tough fight yesterday. Tough fight. But Ryan took the W, and he is coming back. He's one step closer to the Hall of Fame. Ryan, what's up? Not much. How are you guys doing today? We're doing good. Did you ride high on your victory yesterday? I did, even though it was only two questions. That felt great. Hey, you only needed two to beat Randy, which is rare, so you should be proud. I am. All right, well, good luck today. Hopefully you win, and tomorrow will be the big day for the Hall of Fame. Qu- question Sounds number good. one. Vladimir Guerrero leads the AL in home runs with 16. Who was the last Blue Jays player to lead the major leagues in home runs? Is it Carlos, Carlos Delgado, Jose Bautista, or Edwin Encarnacion? Batista, um, I'm going to go with Encarnacion. In 2013, which quarterback set a record by throwing a pick six in four straight games? Matt Schaub, Matt Ryan, or Jay Cutler? Uh, could you repeat that question again? In 2013, which QB set a record by throwing a pick six in four straight games? Matt Schaub, Matt Ryan, Jay Cutler. Uh, Jay Cutler. That's who I would have picked, too. Question number three. (laughs) Which franchise has thrown the most no-hitters? Is it the White Sox, the Dodgers, or the Red Sox? The most no-hitters? Correct. Dodgers. All right. Jordan Clarkson recently took home the Sixth Man of the Year award. Which college was Clarkson at before he transferred to Mizzou? Tulsa, Tulane, or SMU? Tulsa. All right. Checking our score here. Marty confirmed. Got it. Randy's on his way in. Ryan, how do you feel today? You feel as confident as you did yesterday? I didn't feel confident yesterday. <laughs> Not feeling that great today, but we'll see what happens. Well, maybe that's a positive trend. I know. I'm going to keep it humble. I we'll love see it. what happens. Randy, you know Ryan. He beat you yesterday 2-1. to one. Say what's up. Ryan, what's up? How you doing? I'm doing great, sir. How are you? Everything's great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. Good luck. Thank you. Randy. Question number one, Hmm? Vladimir Guerrero leads the AL in home runs with 16. Uh Who was the last Blue Jays player to lead the major leagues in home runs? I think it was Joey Bats, Joey Bautista, I think 49 or something. I'll go with him. In 2013, which QB set a record by throwing a pick six in four straight games? What year was this? 2013. 
2013. Who would have thrown a pick six in four consecutive games? This was when the Rams were in St. Louis. So you'd think that somebody here would be capable of that. <laughs> uh, but I'll do the lifeline. All right. Matt Schaub, Matt Ryan, Jay Cutler. Okay. I am... Uh, I think one of those games was against the Rams. I think Janoris Jenkins returned one against Matt Schaub of the Texans. So I'll go with Matt Schaub. Which franchise has thrown the most no-hitters? The Doyers have. Jordan Clarkson recently took on the Sixth Man of the Year award. Which college was he at before he transferred to Mizzou? Ooh, where was Jordan Clarkson before M-I-Z? Um, I thought he was at, I'm not sure here. Um, I will go with, uh, like, Florida State. Okay. Ryan beat Randy 2-1 to one yesterday. Did he do it again? Marty. The winner and still champion of the fight, Randy Carricker. The fight sponsored by Ryan Kelly and HeroLoan.com. Check out how they help veterans and service members at the new and improved HeroLoan.com. Okay. He did not do it again. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan. Good effort again. Close fight. Randy beat you three to two. Three to two. Okay, uh, Vladimir Guerrero leading the American League in home runs with 16, but the last Blue Jays player to lead the majors in home runs was Jose Bautista. Randy got that correct. In 2013, Matt Schaub set a record by throwing a pick six in four straight games, as you heard Janoris Jenkins returning one of them. And uh, it was the fourth one, and he put up a four oh, man. as he was running into the end zone. Oh, Janoris. Love that confidence. <laughs> The Dodgers are the franchise in Major League Baseball that has thrown the most no-hitters. And before Jordan Clarkson transferred to Mizzou, he was at Tulsa. Ryan, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for playing. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Ryan, have a great day and a great holiday weekend. We do appreciate it, and we appreciate all of you because we've been talking about Dunctionary T-shirts for the last several weeks, and now we have the total in for the Chris Duncan Memorial Scholarship Fund. And... We have raised, you have helped us raise $6,574, $6,574, with more to be raised on Chris Duncan Day, Jan, uh, July, June. June 16th at the ballpark. <laughs> One of those. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. But that's an amazing number. And thank you to everyone who has donated, who's bought a shirt, and the money's going to go towards... Dunks Foundation, which is amazing. We're so glad that we get to pour back in and honor him in that way. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And so it's Wednesday afternoon, June 16th, Dunctionary Day at the Bud Deck at the Budweiser Brew House in Ballpark Village. Cardinals will host the Marlins in a 12-15 game that day. And on the Bud Deck, you can enjoy the game with views looking right into the ballpark. Tickets include a hot dog, a beer, and a Dunctionary t-shirt. So you get one if you haven't ordered one already. With a portion of every ticket, as we mentioned, being donated to the Chris Duncan Memorial Scholarship Fund. And we'll be broadcasting live that afternoon. BK and Ferrario from 11 to 2, the Fast Lane from 2 to 6. Get all the Dunctionary Day ticket details now at 101ESPN.com. And we love remembering our friend and teammate and great guy, Chris Duncan. Yes, we do. Coming up next on 101 ESPN, you're killing me, Smalls. What's totally killing Smalls right now? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls, with Michelle Smallman on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by BMW of West St. Louis. Save up to 20% on a great selection of service loaners.
We have a busy 9 o'clock hour. We're going to talk to Jason Benetti, the White Sox play-by-play man on TV. We're going to talk to Nick Ragone from the Ascension Charity Classic. Is Phil Mickelson going to play here in St. Louis in the fall? And then our weekly visit with Adam Wainwright as well. But right now it's time for... You're killing me, Smalls. Okay, Randy, Stephen A. Smith on his show, Stephen A.'s World, does a segment called Let Me Explain. And we know that Stephen A. is a hoops guy. He doesn't really love hockey. He says the only thing he really knows about hockey is that the puck is black. But after another early exit for Connor McDavid, he had something to say. We all know I'm not a hockey expert, okay? The only thing I know about hockey is that the puck is black. But even I have heard that Connor McDavid and Leon Draisaitl, I've heard heard of both of those guys. Connor McDavid, the phenom, the future of the sport, the NHL's leading scorer, Draisaitl, second in scoring to McDavid this year, the NHL's leading scorer last year. Swept in the first round as the higher seed after not even getting out of the qualifying round last year? Now, how you going to do hockey like that? How you going to do that? I think we need that bite for your little machine there. Swept in the first (laughs) round? Because that applies to us, too. But he has a point about McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and how they are not living up to expectations. It's kind of like Michael Jordan at the beginning of his career, isn't it? It's uh, You hope that those guys at some point will turn it on. Peyton Manning went a long time before he started winning playoff games on a regular basis. Sometimes it takes some time, and you can go through the history of hockey. And there are a lot of guys who didn't do anything for the first six years and then were able to turn it on. Steve Eiserman, the most notable example. So I think the biggest issue with McDavid is the franchise that he plays for and mm-hmm. Dreisaitl. It's not the play of him. It's that his team just isn't good enough to get him over the hump. That's the key there. And while you certainly have star players that can take over a game, for you to win the Stanley Cup, it's never just one guy. No. It's an entire. It's everybody. It's everybody. It's boom, boom, Gunnarsson. It's everybody coming up and having their moment and contributing in different ways. And I think that that's the problem when you have a star heavy team. You're never going to get there. We had it with Hull and Oates here. We didn't. We, the, Ron Cron traded the number two line so that he could get Garth Butcher and Dan Quinn. This is 90 91. And you had Hull and Oates, and a good team is going to be able to neutralize even the greatest goal scorers of all time, like Brett Hull. That's what happened to the Blues against the Stars that year, and that's what's happening for Edmonton, too. You're killing me, Smalls. So Terry Francona of Cleveland, Randy, he was talking yesterday about how their starter, Zach Plesak, is going on the injured list because of a non-displaced fracture on his right thumb. You're probably wondering, well, how did he get that injury he suffered the injury while quote rather aggressively ripping off his shirt and catching his thumb on a chair in the locker room on sunday totally get it frustrated aggressively rip off your shirt hit it on the chair i i totally get it yeah he allowed five runs in three and a two three and two thirds innings now i would hate to have that happen if i were a professional athlete but it does happen it is Especially when you're Zach Plesak and you're in your early 20s and you think you're going to be great all the time and you got that testosterone built up. Yeah, you get a little anger and you, at least he didn't punch a wall, but he did hit a chair. I was going to say, people have punched walls. No Alex names. Reyes. Okay, I was going to say no names mentioned, but go ahead and name him. Uh, drone injuries. We've seen weirder mm-hmm. injuries before, but aggressively ripping off your shirt is one that people are not going to forget anytime soon. No, because 
I wonder if he aggressively ripped off a, like a button down. That must have been, huh? And I wonder if he ripped the buttons. Well, then he needs to call Nick Punto up, the shredder, yeah. and find out how to rip a jersey off without injuring himself. Good call. Don't rip off your jersey while there's a chair sitting next to you, unless it's a padded chair. Also, I keep thinking about this. If you're ripping the shirt, how close does the... Oh, Randy, well, I there you go. I just knocked over water by you aggressively ripping my, my shirt. You for me, I yeah. guess. I'm thinking, how how close is the chair, and how do you get your thumb to hook in the chair if you're ripping the shirt? It only has to be two and a half feet away. But, but if you're... And if it's going down... But you've seen the chairs in the clubhouse. It, they're kind of a folding type chair. So I'm I'm thinking even if he's sitting and the chair's next to him, it's not close enough and he'd have to have his hand down to hook it in the side of the right. chair. Yeah, it's kind of a weird situation. You'd like to see a picture of that chair. What happened? I want to see the evidence because I guess if you say he was ripping his shirt and it hooked in a chair, you want to blame the chair rather than thinking that your hands and your bones are just so weak that you're ripping the jersey off yeah. and your thumb goes. What is uh But what, logistically yeah. something something's not fitting in the puzzle for me about the chair. No. He needs to take part in the character and Smallman four pillars and deflect blame wherever he can deflect it to. Seems like they are. They're Yep. The, it was the chair's the chair. fault. It was the chair's fault. You're killing me, Smalls. So yesterday during the segment we played Aaron Rodgers' comments on Kenny Maine's final sports mm-hmm. center about his feelings towards Green Bay currently. And he talked a lot about the culture there and how he thinks some people there have forgotten about the people and what makes Green Bay special. Well, Matt LaFleur, his coach, was w- one of the many of millions of people that heard those comments and was watching Aaron Rodgers on Sports Center. And he was asked about Rogers' comments. And he said, Aaron definitely knows how we feel about him, how he's such an important part to our football team, such an important part to our organization. We're just going to continue to try to work through this and hopefully can get him back in the building at some point. Yeah, essentially what Rogers said was, this organization is about people, pause, but what wasn't said, that defer to me and... The, the people don't matter unless they defer to Aaron Rodgers. So it is all about great people, but only if they defer to him. This is going to be such a standoff and such a battle of the egos, and I can't wait to see well, how it plays out because logic would tell you that Rodgers would blink first, that he, coming off an MVP season, knowing he has a finite amount of time left to play, would not want to sit out and miss games. But this is an all-time stubborn guy. I don't know. He might just retire and so he doesn't have to play for them. You opened the door for him because you had a coach that had made the playoffs eight years and you let him fire that coach. Yeah, that's right. So with Mike McCarthy gone and he says, well, I got that guy fired. Why can't I get this guy fired? You open that door for Rodgers. He believes that he can do anything in that organization now. Man. But it is interesting that he talked about the culture and how they need to appreciate people. And then the first comments from the head coach are, no, he knows how important he is. He knows what he (laughs) means to us. Thanks, Michelle. You got it. Coming up on 101 ESPN, we're going to head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line and find out how Tony LaRusse is doing within the confines of the cell, the ballpark in Chicago. Jason Benetti, the broadcaster on TV for the White Sox, is next on 101 ESPN. Opinions do matter. Time for today's Big Thing with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Powered by SSM Health Express Clinic at Walgreens. Visit SSMHealth.com for more information.
901 in St. Louis. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler, Michelle Smallman, Randy Carricker, and we head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line, and White Sox play-by-play man Jason Benetti joins us here on 101 ESPN in St. Louis. Jason, it's great to have you. Thanks for taking some time with us this morning. How are you doing? I'm glad to. This is the first time I've ever been on a celebrity line. <laughs> it seems like a misnomer. No, the, you, you are absolutely a celebrity. And certainly for us, our very first program director here at 101 ESPN was Jason Barrett. He actually hired uh, both Michelle and I, and I know that you have uh, a knowledge of Jason Barrett. So it's good to have you on the air. I'm glad to be here. Thank you all for having me. Well, let's start with this, because we've talked a lot about the reaction to Tony Larusa in the Chicago community and in the White Sox fan community. How is he received when you're doing games now, you got some fans back in the stands. How is he received by White Sox fans? You know, I think there are two factions. I mean, I, you know, I, I, uh, there was a whole flap last week with your mean Mercedes. And I thought Tim Anderson handled it perfectly when he said, uh, Tony's like our dad and we're like the bad kids who won't do what dad wants us to. <laughs> Uh, I thought it was hilarious, and it was the right way to handle it, and it was exactly how Tim feels. I think there are two factions of people. I think there are some people who who won't accept Tony um, and weren't happy with the hire, and then there are some Sox fans who are really happy because they like his old-school mentality and they like the way that, uh, you know, you walk in with a couple World Series rings. I think that helps you uh, as a Hall of Famer. So, you know, I think there are two categories of people, and I – I don't think they're going to move off their spot regardless of what this team does. Jason, how, if it has at all, is the noise impacting Tony La Russa? Because we know that oftentimes here in St. Louis he would take criticism and he did a really good job of funneling that out of his line of vision. But it seems like in Chicago every headline is about Tony La Russa and about people not liking him. So I'm just curious how he's been reacting to that. I think he honestly honestly truly does not care a lick he cares about winning like hey tony how's your day we'll find out at 10 o'clock mm-hmm. you know like that that you you all know right i mean that's that's the way he is i legitimately think he has a superpower for not hearing any of it and that's been it's funny you asked that because some of the criticism last week was why aren't you hearing the criticism of you and changing your thoughts on the Mercedes thing. <laughs> so it's it's really funny. Like, that's been part of the criticism is that he has not heard what people are saying. And, the, you know, people are saying he's behind the times. And, like, I, I personally don't agree with his philosophy on 3-0 swings. I think you need runs whenever you can get runs. And I, I like – I said this on the telecast, so it's, it's not news. Uh, I like fun in the game and everything that comes along with it. But I think that was a lot of much ado about nothing because I don't believe there's any way he's, he's lost the clubhouse. I think everybody's having fun. People are winning, as you saw the last couple nights. So I think, I think everybody is, is doing fine. And Jason, you mentioned him tuning it out. A lot of talk has been made about his age. Maybe that he's able to tune it out because he's not glued to his phone and addicted to social media <laughs> like the rest of us. Well, when Tony LaRusa gets an Instagram, it's going to be a very cold day in wherever heaven is not. 
<laughs> Jason Benetti, White Sox play-by-play man with us on 101 ESPN. I really thought the team was in trouble when they lost Eloy Jimenez, and then I really, really thought they were in trouble when they lost Luis Robert, too. Be where they are under the circumstances actually is pretty remarkable, and I know the pitching's been fabulous, but to lose those two key components of the lineup and still succeed is hard to do. Oh, it's really hard, and we've been looking for the last month for reasons to believe the offense is going to go away. I mean, they have the highest ground ball rate in Major League Baseball. They have a high batting average on balls in play. All of the indicators suggest that, you know, at some point, baseball karma is going to come after you with sirens on. And that has not happened to this offense yet. I mean, you saw it last night. There, it, you know, Tony LaRusso's had Cardinal teams that may not have had the most power or the most talent or whatever, and there are just some nights where you win the game. And a Cardinal defense that generally, for me, from what I've seen, is pretty good, just kicked the ball all over the ballpark. I asked in, like, the fifth inning if we could get a level out down on the field to make sure that the field wasn't tilting last night. I mean, it was like it was the most bizarre defensive game I've seen in a long time. And, yeah, I think this team, they make a lot of contact compared to where they've been the last couple of years, the White Sox. And, you know, they've put a lot of balls in play and they've gotten paid off for it. It also seems like the emergence of Andrew Vaughn and your mean Mercedes has helped uh, the White Sox in the absence of those two guys. Your mean Mercedes would not have been on this team if not for the Aloy Jimenez injury. <laughs> and you look and you say, well, how could that be? All he does is hit the ball, and and it's so fun to watch the guy hit with two strikes. The Sox have been one of the best two-strike hitting teams in Major League Baseball all season long. Mercedes completely shortens up, makes contact on two strikes. He is not a mirage. He just is not. We, we really, truly believe that. And then Andrew Vaughn, he didn't hit a homer last night, but he has the longest home run off of a Roldis Chapman now in the StatCast era. That came on Sunday. That kid can really hit. And, yeah, I, when you have injuries like that, you have to get bonus from somewhere else. You have to get other people playing above where they normally do. And Andrew Vaughn, obviously, is new to Major League Baseball. So is Mercedes. And you both mentioned it. The starting pitching has been so remarkable that when you have guys playing above there, and you'll see it today, Carlos Rodon is another one of those guys playing above where the Sox expected. He's a number five starter in this rotation, and he's pitching like a number one. So you get house money other places, and you end up having one of the top records in the American League. And obviously Lance Lynn, the former Cardinal, pitching like a number one as well, Jason. And in addition to the fact that Lynn is pitching as well as he is, I have to believe that he's a pretty good buffer in that clubhouse for anybody who has problems with the way Tony Larusa acts and we know how competitive he is and how demanding he is Lance Lynn's a guy that can say hey don't worry about it I've been through this before well that was what was so that was the funniest part last week about yeah, the whole great. situation when when Lance said you know it's a, it's a 16 to 4 game we all just want to go home and Tony said well I have an office and Lance has a locker. Like, hey, guys, guys, it's okay. It's fine. And it's, it was interesting to see that because Lance Lynn, I think, is pretty well-renowned for being an old-school guy. And I, I, I don't think a lot of people expected him to be the one to vocally push back. 
But I think that's right. I think he is a buffer. And I also think he's very willing to walk into Tony LaRusso's office and say, no, 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 no. Like, this is not what, what I think. And they can have it out. I think there's a respect level there. And I think it's really good for this clubhouse. Jason, great to have you with us. A 110 game today, and we appreciate you joining us just a few hours before game time. Keep up the great work, and uh, hopefully, we'll get an opportunity to see you guys in the postseason. Tony Larusa against the Cardinals in the postseason would be great theater. It's just so weird to see him managing against the Cardinals, isn't it? I don't even live in St. Louis, and the whole series, I've been like, wait, <laughs> is somebody is somebody doing a season simulator in MLB The Show, and like? He's in the wrong dugout. What is happening? That's It's very strange. It really is. And the fact that he, he's smiling a lot, he's enjoying himself. We didn't see that until the end of 2011. So it's pretty cool to see that too. Jason, have a great one. Take care. Thank you. Thank you all. See you later. later. Jason Benetti, White Sox broadcaster with us on 101 ESPN. It is weird to see Tony La Russa in a White Sox uniform, especially yeah. if he's competing against the Cardinals. And I was thinking about it last night because he had the red, white, and blue White Sox the first time he was there. And then green and gold, and then red and white, and just to see him. And I guess he had the black and uh, silver for a little while before he got fired by the White Sox the first time. But he just, it doesn't look normal. No, it doesn't. Just like it'll never look normal to me to see Albert Pujols wearing a Dodgers uniform. No, which we'll have an opportunity to see on this Cardinal road trip. Coming up is Phil Mickelson going to play golf here in St. Louis next fall. We're going to talk to our friend Nick Ragone. He is the Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer of the Ascension Charity Classic. He's next on 101. Coming up in the fall, September 6th through 12th here in St. Louis at Norwood Hills Country Club, it's the Ascension Charity Classic presented by Emerson. And in watching Phil Mickelson win the PGA Championship on Sunday, you wonder, will the 50-year-old Phil be playing here in St. Louis in the fall? Well, we've got the guy that can hopefully answer that question. He is Nick Ragone, and he is the Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer for Ascension, and he joins us on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line on 101 ESPN. Nick, it's always great to have you with us. Thanks for the time today. How are you doing? It's great. It's been an exciting, uh, really, 48 hours. I mean, uh, I could tell you, when we were watching the tournament on the weekend and Phil started climbing the leaderboard on Saturday, our website traffic started going up and phone calls about, you know, tickets and pro-am sales and all that. And as he, you know, kept the lead on Sunday and got through the back nine and opened it up to five shots, literally our traffic was growing and growing. And I think uh, on the 24 hours after he won, we sold 25 pro-am spots, which are very coveted just on the idea that, A, he created all this excitement, and, B, he's won twice in the Champions Tour, and we hope that he'll play here. We don't know his schedule. But, he, you know, if, if Tiger is the needle, Phil still moves the needle, and this is just so exciting. That is so exciting, Nick. Well, we know that Phil won the PGA Championship. He's 50. He also qualifies for the Tour Champions event, like the Ascension Charity Classic presented by Emerson, which is why we're talking to you. So you mentioned that he hasn't committed yet. When will you know if he commits, and what is appealing about this event for someone like Phil? Well, we, you know, the, so the field, we're going to have a stacked field. I mean, we've, we've been talking to the tour, and we know that most of the big players, we're talking to Ernie Els and Jim Furyk and Mike Weir. Obviously, we have Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson already committed, Hale Irwin. Uh, so we know we'll have a great field. Now, with Phil, you don't really commit to about a week before. When he, 
he made his Champions Tour debut in Missouri uh, down in Branson. He committed like the week of the tournament. So it'll be last minute with Phil. Now, what I will tell you is we're working hard to try to make this as appealing as possible. So if your listeners are on Twitter, Phil's a big Twitter guy, tweet him, tell him to come to St. Louis. I think his schedule is going to get busier. I don't know that he had anybody had seen him winning a major. And so he'll probably play in all the, the PJ Tour FedEx Cup events leading up uh, to their end of their season. Now, the beauty is for us, the Essential Charity Classic, the week that we have it, there's no PGA Tour field opposite us. So we're the only professional golf that week in North America. And so my guess is Phil is going to be on the Ryder Cup team, and he might want to use uh, our tournament as a, as a warm-up for the Ryder Cup, which is a few weeks after that. And so it's the perfect stop for him to come to. The players are excited to come to St. Louis. So if you're on Twitter, tweet Phil and tell him to come to St. Louis. And that's that's a great idea. And say, come on to the Ascension Charity Classic at Ascension Charity Classic on Twitter. And by the way, Nick talked about the Pro-Am. You can go to ascensioncharityclassic.com. How many spots are left? You mentioned that 25 were purchased. How many spots in the Pro-Am are remaining now? You know, I don't know the exact number, but I can tell you they're going rapidly. We are way ahead of where we projected to be at this point in Pro-Ams. In fact, we had to open up two days of Pro-Ams. Um, fortunately, you know, Norwood's a big course. We have a lot of space and then we're doing a, another program on the Tuesday, but I could tell you ticket sales have gone through the roof. We're way ahead of where we should have been. Um, pro-am t- uh, sales. We've already sold about 35 hospitality tents. We were supposed to do about 15. So it's, um, what I would say, if anybody's interested in tickets, pro-ams, hospitality, go to our website, essentialcharityclassic.com now, because the inventory is going way faster than we thought. And uh, and if you want to, you know, it's going to be a perfect time right after Labor Day. The weather will be great. It'll be outside. We think this will feel more like a PGA Tour event in size than it will a Champions Tour event. And, Nick, it's interesting because I, I think any golfer, whether you are 23 years old and just got your tour card for the first time this year, or if you're a six-time major winner like Phil Mickelson that's 50 years old, if you hear that Jack Nicholas and Hale Irwin and Tom Watson are going to be involved with an event, that's got to be a draw as well, doesn't it? It absolutely. You know, the fact that Mr. Nicholas and, and Tom Watson, and Tom has a connection to Norwood, you know, he met his famed caddy, Bruce Edwards, there in 1974. And so he has a real connection as well as being from Missouri. But the fact that Jack and Tom said, we want to be a part of this, it tells you everything you need to know about how important is St. Louis is to the PGA Tour and PGA Tour champions and how committed the legends of the game are to growing this game. And we're going to have Jack and Tom out here in July for a Legends Lunch. We're going to honor them as the first two inaugural honorees of the Essential Charity Classic. And then they're going to be playing that Saturday of the tournament in a, a Legends foursomes with uh, two other legends from the area, probably a Cards and a Blues player. We haven't announced that yet. So, And it has signaled to the rest of the tour that this is a special event. Uh, like I said, we will have one of the strongest fields of the year And I think it's just going to be such a strong event, and it's going to uh, solidify professional golf in St. Louis, particularly in North County, for years to come. Also, Nick, you mentioned the dates. It's September 6th through the 12th, and I'm looking at the Cardinals schedule, and the Cardinals are also in town that week. So it feels like something that you could roll into a really fun sports weekend. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, some of the players on the tour have already said, can you get us tickets for the Cardinals game? And we said, absolutely. <laughs> so a lot of these guys, want it. they're all they're sports fans. I mean, a lot of them are big-time sports fans. And so having the cards in town that week is going to be great. I'm pretty sure you'll see some of the players down in the, at the stadium, and we, we're going to get them at the game. And I'm sure there'll be activities and some promotional stuff. And it's going to be a real, you know, we've been so starved for live sports now for 18 months, and it's great that the Cardinals are going to have full attendance in a few weeks. And having an outdoor major golf event 
uh, again, at Norwood in a historic part of town uh, at a great time of year is just um, the momentum has been fantastic. And Phil winning has put it in overdrive. It's just really been a blessing. It's the Ascension Charity Classic presented by Emerson, September 6th through 12th at Norwood. And Nick Ragone, if people want to get involved either by buying tickets or getting involved, you mentioned the 35 corporate tents that are already sold. If they want to get those, if they want to get involved in the luncheon, what's the best way to get in contact with the tournament? Just go to the website. That really is ascensioncharityclassic.com. And we're still looking for volunteers, although those have, uh, you know, tournaments are run by volunteers. So if you want to volunteer, go to the website. If you want tickets, clubhouse passes, pro-ams, hospitality tents, um, really anything, go to the website. And we've been, uh, our team has been swamped uh, in the last 48 hours, thanks to Phil. And I think, interesting enough, I think Phil is now the favorite to win the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines in a month. And I don't think anybody would have predicted that Phil Mickelson would be one of the <laughs> Legit favorites to win the Open, but here it is. I'll tell you quickly, we had uh, one of your ambassadors, Jay Delsing, on uh, every Friday morning, and I, I asked Jay last week, I said, is there any way that Phil, at the age of 50, can play four solid rounds in a row and win this thing? And we both questioned him doing it. We won't question him anymore. Now, you know, Phil has defied expectations for 30 years. I mean, he won his first tournament as an amateur, one of the few players to ever do that in 1991, and 30 years later, we're talking about him as a major champion. And even Jack Nicholas had, that's the longest span of uh, between victories in the history of golf. And that's extraordinary. You know, Phil has been dominated. Uh, he's played in the tiger era, which has been tricky, but he has dominated the sport with tiger for 30 years. And I think it's such a gift that he gives golf that he kind of pops up and does this. And uh, it couldn't be a more exciting time for the champions tour in our tournament. Nick, we appreciate the time. We're looking forward to the tournament and it should be a fun summer leading up to it. And I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. Look forward to chatting some more. Thank you both. Thanks, Nick. Nick Ragone, he is the executive VP and chief marketing officer for Ascension, the Ascension Charity Classic presented by Emerson, September 6th through 12th at Norwood Hills Country Club. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And we mentioned the Cardinals, four versus the Dodgers, and then three versus the Reds for that week in yeah. town. Oh, Albert coming back to town. That's right. That's going to be great. great. Michelle, we're going to talk to... Uh, Adam Wainwright in a little bit, but I wanted to get to this because it's a breaking story, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it throughout the day here on 101 ESPN, and of course we'll talk about it tomorrow morning, but Don Madnata Jr. and Seth Wickersham have an explosive story at ESPN.com about how there was one particular businessman who tried, without an awful lot of success, to quash the Spygate investigation back in 2007-2008. Who was that particular businessman? Uh, that was the pre-president Donald J. Trump. Oh, interesting. Who was a friend of Robert Kraft. And we know all about the background of the story that Eric Mangini, the Jets coach, said, hey, here's what the Patriots do. I know because I worked with Bill Belichick in Cleveland. So the league started to investigate. Arlen Specter called, the senator from Pennsylvania, called for a federal investigation And according to this story, Trump went to Specter and offered him various and sundry items to stop the investigation. So I haven't read the story completely yet. I read a couple paragraphs. And did it have any effect on that? Because as we know, the tapes were burned and the investigation essentially was halted. Yeah, this was going to be a federal investigation. Those tapes were burned within a week after the allegations. So they were going to talk to people from the Patriots from around the league. But 
here's what it's about. Recently and unexpectedly, there's been a movement in the quest to find out more about Spygate. Follow-up conversations with people closest to Arlen Specter, his oldest son, Shanine, a Philadelphia personal injury and medical malpractice attorney, and Charles Robbins, Specter's trusted longtime communications aide and the ghostwriter of two Specter memoirs, revealed this. The man who dangled campaign cash if Specter were to drop the Spygate inquiry was none other than Donald J. Trump. Not only that, they write, Trump had told Specter he was acting on behalf of Robert Kraft. Kraft and Trump, both responding to ESPN through spokespeople, denied involvement in any effort to influence Specter's investigation. But we know that they are tight, those two. We do. So it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that they would have had conversations, Kraft and Trump, and that Trump would have tried to be an outside influence here to help out his friend. That doesn't seem unrealistic. And apparently, according to the story, Trump or had been a generous political patron of Specters for two decades. He was very involved with the political career of Arlen Specter. And this all starts one day in early 2008. Specter had dinner with Trump in Palm Beach at his palatial club not far from Kraft's Florida home. A phone call followed. The friend offered Specter what the senator felt was tantamount to a bribe. Quote, if you laid off the Patriots, there will be a lot of money in Palm Beach. It is so interesting to me how many lengths went by so many people to protect the Patriots in this instance, whether it was Goodell who burned the tapes and who made sure that it didn't go to an investigation because it was going to be terrible for the league, or if it's Trump who was trying to support his friend here. It just is crazy to me that a team could so blatantly cheat and get caught and the cover-up that ensues. What I've always thought since that happened is that if there is evidence that the outcome of Super Bowls, let alone regular season NFL games, if the outcome of Super Bowls where billions of dollars are bet on it every year, if those come into question, if the integrity of the outcomes of those games is thrown into question or impugned, then the league has real problems. Because Mm -hmm. why do people like football? 50% of the popularity, at least, of football is gambling. And if you can't trust what you're seeing and can't trust what you're gambling on, if you feel like the outcome is predetermined and you didn't have a chance to win that bet, you're probably going to find something else to bet on. But if you're the league and the information is already out about the tapes, you know the tapes exist, you know the intent behind making the tapes, the damage is already done. So whether you burn the tapes or not, you know that some sort of influence affected the outcome of this game. So I would think that I would want to punish them as as far as I possibly could to set an example to prove to my customers that we're not going to tolerate anything like this. And they did get punished. They lost the first round draft choice and got fined and Belichick got fined too. But I would want to expose them. See, I, I wouldn't. wouldn't have, I, I wouldn't have burned it, the tapes. It, I would have wanted to no. make an example out of them to deter anyone else from wanting to do it. But from a league standpoint, I don't believe that you want gamblers to think there's anything amiss because, by many accounts, you had a tape of the Rams walkthrough in the Saturday before the Super Bowl, and Marshall Falk said in that walkthrough, we practiced goal line drills that. We had never run before, and -hmm. they knew exactly what was coming. Now, the Rams didn't spend an awful lot of time in the red zone there. 
So maybe Marshall's off base. But the fact of the matter is, there is a strong belief on the part of a lot of people. If you ask Kurt, if you ask Marshall, if you ask Isaac, if you ask Mike Martz, they'll all tell you that they think something was amiss with the Super Bowl. And if there was, if I'm the league, I don't want anybody to know about it. I I understand where uh, an honest, rational person would want to make sure that the people that committed a crime were punished for it, but you're putting the words honest and rational next to the NFL and Roger Goodell, which you can't do. Which was my mistake. However, if I'm another head coach and I'm looking at the way this was handled, that doesn't stop wanting to cheat. If anything, it makes me think, well, they're just going to protect the shield. So they'll want, they're not going to expose me in the way Mm -hmm. that the Patriots should have been exposed. If anything, I think it fosters more bravado within the NFL to cheat. Well, certainly with them, right? Yeah. I mean, look at the deflate situation. They've been fined and lost draft choices again. And they had another Spygate that they got fined for. So for them, if you're Robert Kraft and somebody is bribing a senator to, in your behalf, to quash uh, an investigation, and it succeeds because the federal investigation never got off the ground, is it worth it for you to spend a million dollars in a first-round draft choice to win a Super Bowl? Six times? Without a doubt. It is. Yeah. Without a doubt. And so Robert Kraft, you're right. I would have more bravado, too, if I was getting away with it. Absolutely. And um, all you need to know about the tapes, they had to have something pretty detrimental on them for them to be burned so quickly. Yeah. Because if if it was a, a really benign walkthrough and no plays that were executed in the Super Bowl or anything was super amiss, they wouldn't have burned them in the way that they did. They wouldn't have tried to bury it upon impact. And we need to make this point, and we'll try to get Seth or Don on the show, but nobody does a better job of getting the dirt in the NFL than Seth Wickersham and Don Van Natta of ESPN.com. The stories that they turn out, the detail that they are able to unearth is remarkable, amazing, incredible, and they're as good a reporters as there are covering anything in our country. Couldn't agree more, and I can't wait to dive into this after the show because I'm sure the details that they were able to get are unbelievable. It's not only the the access that they get, but the information that they're able to extract out of people who have to be major players in this. I, if you go back and you read their uh their writings on the the secret vote and what allowed the Rams to move, the access that they got in that room and the information they were able to get out of other owners is incredible. It really is. And again, the lead, if you just tuned in, uh, the reporting by Seth Wickersham and Don Van Natta of ESPN.com is that back in 2008, friend of Robert Kraft, Donald Trump, offered Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania, a friend and a beneficiary of Trump's largesse in terms of donating, Trump offered Specter essentially a bribe to quash the investigation into the Patriots Spygate scandal. That'll be the story that comes out of this, and I'm sure that everybody will be covering this all day long. And it's an interesting story. It really is. Coming up, we're going to have our weekly visit with our buddy, Adam Wainwright, brought to you, of course, by our friends at Chick-fil-A. Adam is next on 101 ESPN. Getting you inside the cards. A pump of the fist from Adam Wainwright. This is Carragher and Smallman with cards pitcher Adam Wainwright. Wainwright's 23rd complete game of his career. Absolutely remarkable. 
brought to you by Chick-fil-A, where you can earn points on your next order with the Chick-fil-A One app at any of our 16 St. Louis area locations. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carricker, great to have you with us on a day that the Cardinals have a 110 contest at Chicago against the White Sox. We head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line, and our friend Adam Wainwright joins us as he does every Wednesday for Wednesdays with Wayno. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Doing great. How are y'all doing? Doing good. I got to tell you, first of all, I'm wearing my Wayno's World t-shirt today. <laughs> I knew I liked you. See, I, I'm always supporting big league impact, and I want to make sure that people go to the website and participate because there's so many cool things happening with individual players around baseball, and you obviously won the Roberto Clemente Award last season, but there's a lot of really charitable players around your sport, aren't there? Oh, my word. Hold on. Let me turn that off. Uh, yeah, there it is. There, there's, uh, I think there's a realization that um, – as a big league athlete, as a person in the spotlight, as a person who has a huge platform, there's a lot of really good things you can do in the world. I think people are really catching on to that. I mean, it's not it's not a new thing. Players have been doing great things in the communities and around the country for a long time. But I think it's really, I think it's really hitting home that people can, you know, if they feel really strongly about something, they have an opportunity to make a difference in that life. So uh, it's cool to see people out there doing doing cool things and uh, supporting the, the causes that they feel so passionately about. That is cool, Adam. What wasn't cool for me is seeing Tony La Russa in a White Sox uniform. How does that register with you? <laughs> uh, you know, we've seen it before. I mean, not not when uh, – it's been a while since he's been a White Sox. <laughs> I see a lot of pictures of it, you know, and him. And I can remember him in Oakland, too. But he'll always be a cardinal to me. I mean, you know, that's uh, – I think that's where he really um, was able to to do a lot of game changing things. You know, I mean, he he brought in the the idea that we're going to have a film guy. He brought Chad Blair in. I think Chad was a camera guy in Oakland, and he brought Chad over with him. And hey, Chad, the guy that uh, our hitters are going to start watching film on on these. Uh, on these pitchers that we're facing, that was kind of a new thing, I think. And then, you know, he, he's the kind of the first one, if I'm not mistaken, that brought in the closer, you know, that brought the idea of a closer, a guy who was kind of dedicated for that one run, that one inning, that ninth inning role. I mean, before that, I think closers, you know, you might have a closer, but he pitched two or three innings a lot of times mm-hmm. at the end of the game. So he did a lot of career, or a lot of baseball changing things as a manager. I mean, he's just – a very, very smart man. I'm glad we got to have him in St. Louis as long as we did. And he and Mike Schilt, Adam, have a lot of similarities. They're cut from the same cloth in a lot of ways. So as someone that has played with both of them, when you look at Tony La Russa and Mike Schilt, what's one way in which they're similar and one way which they're different? Well, I'll start with the differences. Um, I haven't seen Schilty wearing sunglasses in the night games. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, as far as how they're similar, you know, they were, and and Tony um, did a great job of this, even though he was a, a legendary manager kind of already when he came over to St. Louis. You know, he let Red Shane Deans and, and George Kissel pour into him and, and, uh, and Whitey and those guys. Those guys 
we're constant resources for him. You know, he, he uh, never stops learning. He's a really smart guy. Everybody knows he's a, you know, got a law degree and all kinds of stuff. Uh, but he, he never stops learning, um, never stops wanting to learn. And I think Schilty is in that same same way. And, and also was, you know, George Kissel's shadow for a long, long time would uh, would pull up chairs next to Red for a long time and ask questions. And, and uh, you know, when you're, when you're constantly wanting to learn, you're constantly asking questions, you're constantly, constantly seeking how to be better i mean you know you're gonna you're gonna get better and that's what those guys both do well you know did you get a chance to talk to tony he's not the most social guy with opponents and you are the opponent now but during the pregame either last night or the night before did you get a chance to say hi to him said hi to him uh two days before or the first after the first game, like before the first game and, and during batting practice, just from across the outfield. And I, I was kind of expecting that to be it, honestly. Uh, you know, once you're not on his team anymore, he's uh, he, he's still our, he's still a big fan. You know, he'll still text from time to time. You know, uh, until this year when he was managing, just to let you know he's watching, let you know that uh, you know you're, you're doing good things, whatever. Did that intensity when we get, when we would ask? Go ahead, Bueno. Well, you're the enemy. And so last night I had the opportunity to, uh, I was leaving the park. I was walking out, walking to the bus. And sure enough, as soon as I stepped into the, uh, into the tunnel, there's Tony. He's walking out too. So we walked all the way towards the bus together and shared a good conversation. He's, uh, he's, he's still Tony, man. I don't think he's changed a bit. I was going to ask you if, if that intensity is he he the same way with you guys? Like when we would ask him how he's doing, he'd say, ask me at 10 o'clock. That's his famous line. Did that spill over into the clubhouse? Absolutely. Yeah. We, he he might've told you, asked me after the game. He, he, he gave us a more direct, blunt answer that I can't say on the air. <laughs> but absolutely. Um, always intense before the game, you know, it's, what, is, what does he need to do to help win that game that night? He's that way all the time. You know, he, until after you win a game, you know, you'll see him smile. Uh, before that, you're not going to get a whole lot of smile at Tony Russo's pregame. Adam, Jack Flaherty's been great this season for the Cardinals. Last night just wasn't his night, and I was watching the game, and when things aren't going your way as a pitcher, how do you regain composure, or at least try to regain composure in that moment where it just seems like whatever whatever you're throwing isn't really happening. Maybe there's defensive miscues, and it seems like everything's spiraling out of control. When you have been in a situation like that, what do you do to try and regain composure? Yeah, I actually thought Jack did – a pretty great job of controlling his composure. I think if we'd have seen Jack a couple of years ago, I think he would have uh, really let that bother him more. I mean, that's a great lineup over there for one thing, right? And if you if you let anything get to you, it's going to spiral out of control real quick. I thought he – I mean, we made – what did we make, four errors last night? Three, possibly four errors Three, yeah. in a row. Uh, you know, a couple in that one inning and a couple, that maybe one other one that could have been called in there. I mean, we, we just did not play a good defensive game last night, right? It just, it just happened. And he, but, you know, by all accounts, we've played great ball games for him all year. I think he understands that even the best of baseball defensive teams, which, which we are, by the way, we're one of the best defensive teams in all the game again. Um, 
even those teams have off nights. And last night we had an off night. I don't think any of our defenders would tell you anything different. You know, we, we uh, expect more of ourselves than we played last night. And and uh, Jack was on the on the pitching side of that, which was unfortunate. But, you know, he made some – he kept grinding. He made some really tough pitches, really good pitches when he needed to. I know – I mean, you know, when you look at the line, you're kind of like, well, I mean, he didn't do that great. But that could have got a lot worse. He had – a lot of things stacked against them. We could have gone one, two, three, the one inning that they ended up scoring runs. They had at one point they had two hits and five runs on the board, and that's just really hard in a big league atmosphere. That almost never happens. So we gave some free free passes last night that we won't do again. And and Jack was on the side of that, but you know what? He is an amazing competitor. He is a, a guy who wants to win and works hard. He works his tail off. I mean, he is one of the hardest workers I've ever been around. Um, he's cut from the same cloth with Chris Carpenter in many ways. And uh, I think you, you'll see and have seen a guy who's, who's a champion. I mean, he's a, he really is. He competes like a champion. He works like a champion. He does everything that winners do. And that's, that's going to play out in, in the long, in the long run. I was, I was actually proud of him last night. I mean, he, he grinded. That was not an easy situation we put in. Adam, when you have a start like that, let me just put it in your own shoes here in the last two starts. Two starts ago, you have a rough time in San Diego. Your last start, brilliant, seven uh, or eight shutout innings uh, against the Cubs. When you come in the next day to watch yourself and critique and review yourself, do you do it in the exact same way? I I know you're probably harder on yourself after a loss, but I just want to know how you review a start. Well, I'll be looking for certain things based off of what I know I struggled with the day before. Um, but then I'm also looking for just the overall game. Where was my delivery, right? Like what shape was my delivery? And because pitching and, and all your prep work, right? Your prep work is all designed to give yourself the best chance to go out and compete and make pitches and have success. So that's why we prepare. And, uh, you know, my preparation between this start and last start, my San Diego starting this last start against the Cubs was really good. I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to get better, and, and uh, kind of like what we talked about with Tony and Schilty, when you're when you're when you're not uh, when you don't let your ego get in the way, and you're willing to accept um, advice and willing to accept outside opinions, and you're willing to, to accept that you know sometimes you need a little help, and there's willing to accept that you know maybe you stunk and you got to get better, then then you're going to get better. And Schilt, uh, Mad Dog and I. We, we had two big bullpen sessions. My first bullpen, I worked exclusively on fastball command. I threw 41 fastballs in a row, uh, just trying to get back into making good quality pitches again. And then um, the next time, I, I got all my pitches going. But you know, there was a plan. There was a course of action. There was there was intent behind every 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 possible uh, pitch that I made. And, and I think that's the that's the way you're supposed to practice, you know. It's uh, practice is is really, really important. Despite what Alan uh, Alan Iverson said, um, <laughs> it is a it is a spot to prepare for for your success in your next competition. And so, um, I took it real serious, you know, really, really serious. And I uh, was I was I was glad I was able to to make some adjustments because that game in San Diego was. Uh, atrocious i hated every single part about it i hated my effort i hated uh the the execution of my pitches the 
you know, sometimes the choice of my pitch. I mean, I just, I was just out of it, man. And, and glad that that was a one and done. Adam, I was at the game on Sunday night, and I can't tell you how great it was to be back in the stands at Bush Stadium. And I was telling my friend that I was there with the energy that you get inside Bush Stadium when it's a big game, you're on the mound versus the Cubs. You can't replicate that. You you can't manufacture that in any other way. And I was thinking about you, and what's it like for you to get the ball in that moment and to be back at Bush Stadium and feel that energy from the crowd again? It was amazing. I was so happy to have fans back. I think all our guys said the same thing. You know, the 30,000, whatever we had, it felt like 50,000. I think, you know, we've been kind of conditioned the last year to uh, having no fans or minimal fans as being normal. And so when we, you know, we got a couple of young guys that had never been up. And when they saw that, they were like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. So, <laughs> um, I- I'm glad that they're back. Uh, for many reasons, but for one reason, there's a level, and I think we talked about this before, but there's a there's a level of intensity and a focus and adrenaline that you cannot get yourself to without the fans being there. They they just push us to a whole new level, and so I mean, as far as a competitive standpoint, having them back in the stands is a big deal. Hey, Adam, I have to believe that uh, for, for a guy who is as committed to your family as you are with five kids, a 10-game road trip has to be the most difficult thing about a baseball season for you. Uh, it is in many ways. I mean, there's, uh, like you said, five, five kids and a wife, that's, um, and especially with what we just went through at my house with everybody having COVID, it's, it's uh it's a lot to miss. You know, you get home and sometimes you feel like, gosh, were you that tall when I left? Like, you know, my son is, is two, and I'm like, you know, when I get home from from a week, it's like, you know, he wasn't saying that when I left. And, and I was talking all kinds of crazy stuff. The other day I was packing up, he walked in the room, he said, hey, what you doing? I said, <laughs> I said, I'm, I said I'm packing up, man. He goes, okay, and ran out, ran out of the room. So I just, you know, those things make me laugh, but. We miss a lot of stuff like that along the road. Don't feel bad for us. This is the greatest job in the world, especially being a starting pitcher. Carp and I were talking about that yesterday. It is the greatest job in the world, but we do miss a lot. And uh, we need to touch on big league impact. So many great things happening. And like I mentioned earlier, you've got the all-win campaign going. And people that go to bigleagueimpact.org get an opportunity to see all those players that are doing such great things. Current Cardinals, former Cardinals, your friends around Major League Baseball. And uh, so many guys that are doing so many things for their communities and for the world. Yeah, there is. And, and uh, on that light, we're, we're launching a new trivia night coming up. It's a, a virtual trivia night. So you can tune in. To, it's going to start uh, July 9th. Presented by Valley Sports Midwest. Starts at 7, or 7 p.m. It's going to be five rounds of Zoom trivia. Plus raffle giveaways. We're going to have uh, autographed items, whiskey baskets. You can have up to 10 players on your team. And uh, Goldie and Austin Dean, Tommy Edmond are going to join in with me. And we're going, to, we're going to be asking questions. We'll see how smart you are. We'll see how many things you know about Cardinal baseball and all that. So uh, we're going to be launching that. You can go to bigleagueimpact.org. Check out Trivia Night. We'd love to have you on board to help us do great things around the community and, and around the globe. So uh, tune in to help us out. 
Adam, we love the fact that you're doing it and will absolutely be participating. Have a great rest of the trip. Enjoy your day today. Safe travels, and we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Adam. Adam Wainwright with us. Wednesdays with Wayno. Chick-fil-A, the proud sponsor of Wednesdays with Wayno. And don't forget that today, on Wednesday, you should stop by your local Chick-fil-A and enjoy an ice-cold Sunjoy. Chick-fil-A is donating a portion of the proceeds to Sunjoy Wednesdays to support Big League Impact through the baseball regular season. And our friends at Chick-fil-A bringing some things by. Mike from the DePere location bringing by some uh, some breakfast and some brownies, brownies are over, over there. Over there. Fantastic. Some some jams over here. We, they hook us up. It's great. Now, Randy, I know that we want to support Adam Wainwright and Big mm-hmm. League Impact in any way we can. However, are you allowed to compete in the trivia competition? Because I would imagine as Megamind, a guy who does it every day, it might not be fair if you compete. I'm thinking I'm probably not. Yeah. I got kicked out. I was on a cruise one time doing a sports trivia contest. They found out what I did midway through and they kicked me out. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was winning too much, I guess. Well, that's not fair. Well, like, not fair to the others that I was. Yeah, that's true. Killing them in that's it either. true. What was the prize if you won? Do you remember? Um, I don't even remember what it was. It wasn't a big deal to me. I just wanted bragging rights. That's right. <laughs> hey, great job today by Marty Jenkins in for Emily Butcher as our producer engineer. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, guys. See you tomorrow. Michelle, this was fantastic. Always good to have you in the room and doing fun stuff. Yes, I'll see you tomorrow. Oh, we forgot to tape your thumbs today. Oh, I forgot we to, did. Shoot. Tomorrow, we tape Michelle's thumbs. I'm bringing tape tomorrow. You know what I was thinking about? It's going to be really hard for me to put my headphones on without yeah, it is. thumbs. It's going to be crazy. I might have to bring the earbuds in. Good idea. Ugh. We thank you for tuning in, texting in, and being a part of the show for all of us. Until tomorrow morning at 7. Have a great day, St. Louis. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday, and as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100% agree with OSU making it in over Bama. Nick Saban citing some hypothetical point spreads to prove his point that the tie deserve a spot in the college football playoffs holds little substance when you consider Bama's best win is over Texas. No, the committee got it right. TCU had a great season with far more ranked wins than Bama and didn't deserve to lose their spot after playing a surging Kansas State in a championship game. And Ohio State, while not playing some of their best ball later in the season, was still 12-0 until they came face-to-face with my Wolverines. While the college football playoff system isn't nowhere near as good as it could be, it's better than what we had. And in a few years, it will be better for all of college football. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. Get the latest odds and trends for every professional and amateur league out there. From football to basketball to soccer and esports, we've got it all at BetOnline.net. And if you love sports podcasts, you can find those at BetOnline as well. And don't forget, bet online for the NHL, MMA, boxing, and golf. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more. Bet online where the game starts. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.